You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Does it ever feel like everyone's got more going than you do? Oops. That everyone is smart. So you're Al Myers, kid? Yes, I am. You look pretty stupid to me. Thank you. You say the best skier in town just ran off with your girlfriend? Even your younger brother does better than you do? And that nobody even cares? That broke up with me. Oh, that's nice. Well, you might be right. But remember one thing. I haven't even been to New York City. Nobody was ever better off dead. The truth is, I can out-ski you any day of the week. Oh, really? Yeah, you want to race, I'll take you on any day, sucker. Go that way, really fast. If something gets in your way, turn. All you need is guts. All right! Now turn! I'm going to race, I'm going to lose, and I'm going to die in that order. Go! And you'll never doubt yourself again. He's skiing on one ski! Better off dead. That's a real shame when folks be throwing away a perfectly good white boy like that. An abnormal look at a normal teenager. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Miss Jess Byard. Hello, and geez, there sure are a lot of ugly kids around here. Also joining us is Mr. Mike McBeardo McPadden. Hi, somebody slapped me on the back and my face stuck that way. On this special episode, we are talking about two films from writer-director Savage Steve Holland, Better Off Dead and One Crazy Summer. Both films star John Cusack. In Better Off Dead, he is Lane Meyer, a high school student obsessed with his girlfriend, Beth. When Beth breaks up with him, throwing him over for Roy Stalin, a jock douchebag who can ski the K-12, the most dangerous mountain around, disheartened Lane attempts suicide several times, like you do in a good comedy. We will be spoiling the heck out of this movie and One Crazy Summer, so be warned. So, Jess, I'm curious, when was the first time you saw Better Off Dead, and what did you think? I saw this movie for the first time for this podcast. This is one of those weird blind spots, you know, you have. As movie fans, we consume a lot of media, but you can't watch everything, right? Better Off Dead, and spoil alert, I haven't seen One Crazy Summer either, so this was a... Brand new movie to me, double feature, which is always nice. I was not expecting at all what the movie ended up being. I just, I was thinking like, okay, 80s teen comedy, I got this, like that's whatever. And then there's the savage Steve Holland part of this movie that I was not evidently prepared for. Um, the cartoony reality and everything that just, that wasn't what I was expecting. And it was nice. It was a really, it was a fun time. I, I, I enjoyed myself. So Mike, how about you? I was a senior in high school when the movie came out and uh, I saw it by myself uh, at a theater outside Boston. I, uh, I thought it was extremely clever. It, the commercials did a good job preparing, communicating what the movie was going to be, and it exceeded my expectations. I thought at the time that it was like uh, a Mad Magazine movie, and I, and I always go back in my head to you know Mad Magazine presents Up the Academy, which was uh, just an existing Robert Downey Senior comedy that they just slapped the Mad label on. That movie bombed, and it cost us 
the Mad Film Empire, I believe. And uh, I think this this would have been a great one for Mad to have presented had that worked out a different way. I think I saw this probably on cable or it was a rental, but it feels like Better Off Dead was kind of just a part of the wallpaper of growing up. This would have come out right before I was going into high school, I believe, probably when I was in junior high, which was just about the perfect time for this movie to come into my life. I mean, it's always been there for me, and I watch it now, and it still is as funny, and if anything, I find more humor in it now than I did before. There were a lot of jokes I didn't get at the time, things I didn't necessarily know, like I didn't know about the Van Halen song. I wasn't a big Van Halen person. Like I knew songs from 1984, so it was like years later, and I'm listening to the radio, and Everybody Wants Some comes on, and I'm like, that's that song from Better Off Dead. <laughs> so that's how I know that. <laughs> You'll forever have dancing hamburgers in your... That was fantastic. I was really happy to see all of the animation aspects of both of these movies, but uh, but yeah, the cheeseburgers were great. And if every time I think of David Lee Roth as a talking hamburger, I'm okay with that. Give me a bottle of anything and a glazed donut to go. go, go, go. And I really appreciate now knowing a little bit more about these movies and really seeing what Savage Steve was going for, like especially Lane Meyer as being this almost Woody Allen-esque character, being now more familiar with Woody Allen in, in my later years, you know, having read a lot of his books and stuff. But when he has those one-liners, like, I once made a birdhouse and the Fair Housing Committee condemned it, I hear that stuff coming out of Woody Allen's mouth. Cusack was just fucking on fire in these movies, especially in Better Off Dead. And he just, everything about this movie, I mean, I don't like to say that there are things such as perfect movies, but for me, Better Off Dead is a perfect movie. There's nothing about this that I dislike. Not a line reading, not a camera angle, nothing. I just absolutely love this film. I would strongly agree with that. And as you said, it was wallpaper uh, for me too. And, you know, having been in high school at the time. And even beyond that, it was just around. And I've watched it now in the past five years, uh, having written uh, Teen Movie Hell, you know, several times. And I watched it again this afternoon before we started the podcast. And I'm so impressed by every frame of the movie. And again, in my head, I keep going back to Mad Magazine, where there are so many details loaded in that you can't possibly catch unless you watch it, as it sounds like you and I have, Mike, hundreds of times. Like I said, I was expecting it to just be sort of standard 80s teen comedy John Hughes-type deal, but just, yeah, the amount of gags and the amount of just little things that characters are doing on the sides when, you know, the scene isn't necessarily focused on them, it's layered, and it's layered in a way that I was not expecting from a movie that, that, you know, on its surface is just a comedy about a dude who's so madly infatuated, unhealthily obsessed with his girlfriend that when she ditches him, he, he just, he can't help himself that he's got to either be with her or kill himself. And I think that that's something that probably could have only been pulled off in the eighties. <laughs> I don't love this movie as much as you guys do. Which I think is probably to be expected. A, I didn't see it at a formidable time in my life. I'm 29 now, so I mean, I didn't 
see that when I was in high school and going through all these, you know, hormones and and that's what I was going to say. I think that there is something very inherently male about Savage Steve Holland movies, which is great. That's fine. And I think it's something that I'm just not ever going to be able to fully connect with. I think that there's always going to be a little bit of like a buffer between me and these movies that I just can't really relate so much to John Cusack in either of these movies. <laughs> and he's even not even really my favorite part of either of these movies. I don't really get John Cusack. I get he's a good actor. I like him, but I don't get the love of John Cusack that people who were, you know, around for like you guys who were around for Cusack in these movies when they came out. I don't get that. Well, nowadays, I think looking at something like this, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes seeing this today, and I'm like, wow, his bedroom with all those pictures of Beth and all the hangers. Yeah, he looks like a creep. Right? He is scary. <laughs> it, it could be completely <laughs> Like, scary. that is it. Your boyfriend's going to murder you <laughs> on prom night. Like, that's like, you don't love me anymore? Bye. That, that, but I love how... These gags just keep being layered and layered, and just the level of absurdity to these things is just crazy. Like, like I said, the the thing with the hangers. It's like, okay, we've seen <laughs> that he's got all of these pictures. Like his walls are just wallpapered with all these pictures of Beth and the way that he wakes up in the morning and kisses her picture. And then when his dad is like, I think he's got an unhealthy obsession. And when he opens up the closet door and all of his hangers have pictures of Beth on it, it just it's fantastic. And you just see that with every joke they're just putting on a little bit more if anything you know mike you've been bringing up mad magazine this kind of reminds me a little bit of of airplane it's like we can go this far with the joke but why don't we go two steps farther and continue on that and that's one of the things i love about this movie particularly is that we have these recurring jokes and these recurring things that they just keep getting sillier and sillier we start off with David Ogden Steyer and the whole thing of him trying to protect the window, the one remaining window that the paper boy hasn't broken, and him running out there in his wife's nightgown and yelling at the paper boy and stuff, and then when he turns and he's got the neighbor there. And just that that joke keeps coming back and they keep doing new spins on it. I mean, especially when the neighbor's got the fucking armadillo coat, just like he has. It's like, for fuck's sake, this is amazing. I'm a big fan of Lane's mom in the kitchen constantly with her cooking creations. <laughs> and that's the reality in this movie, I think, is probably what I wasn't prepared for the most, is that I, I was expecting something more grounded in reality. And then I got this where it's like, the, the, what is happening? Like, this woman is creating monsters, basically, in her kitchen and serving them to her family. This little maniacal paper boy, which there I, I, you know, the, the two dollars, the infamous two dollars. I want my two dollars. I finally understand that fully. One of my coworkers last week borrowed seven dollars from me and I printed out the paper boy and put an IOU on it and left it on her desk. And she's like, yeah, I'm like 34 years old. I have no idea what this is. And I'm just like, <laughs> Johnny. Four weeks. 20 papers, that's $2, plus tip. Oh, gee, Johnny, I don't have a dime. Sorry. Didn't ask for a dime. $2. Well, you know, I think you mentioned Airplane, but what's interesting to me is that 
all the surrealism and, and the absurd gags are rooted in emotional, they're exaggerations of emotional realities of adolescence to me. The pining for Beth is mirrored in the, the hangers and the disgusting experiments that your mom might have tried to force you to eat then becomes this tentacle monster coming out of a pot at one point. <laughs> and uh, that really works for me. So it's just, it's how everything is, as you're learning to just sort of get through the world, everything feels so cartoony and out of control at that time. And I, and I think this movie really brilliantly mirrors that with those kind of gags. I have felt like Lane in that math class so many times. When Vincent Schiavelli is up there, giving all of that jumble of jargon and all that stuff and the way that the classroom is just like oh and when they clap at the end it's like what the hell is going on the three cardinal trapezoidal formations hereto made orientable in our diagram by connecting the various points h-i-g-k p-e-g-q and l-m-n-o creating our geometric configurations which have no properties, but with location, are equal to the described triangle CAB quintuplicated. Therefore, it is also the five triangles composing the aforementioned NIGH each are equal to the triangle CAB in this geometric concept. (laughs) Therefore, in a like manner, The geometric metaphors can derive a repeated vectoral sum. This was your assignment, and I would like to see the results. Please, take them out. (laughs) Just laying there, pulling out his... (laughs) his homework, and it's all bubblegum together, and meanwhile you've got the people with the file folders and the calculators and everything. One gets bigger than the next. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. And they just keep layering and layering and layering. That's exactly me in high school. Just, I, there was an assignment. Great. <laughs> and those weird things like the basketball players and how they just are like that chorus of the voices and stuff. I love that. That whole like, mm. and they're all eating baby food, which I didn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even notice that. That's how many jokes are in here. That's what I mean. Yeah. Wow, they were. <laughs> I noticed, yeah. Uh, and then the incomparable Charles DeMar, Curtis Armstrong. I mean, this was the movie. I was a little too young for Risky Business. Of course, I knew of the whole sliding in and the Bob Seger and all that kind of stuff. But like this was the movie for me. Like Even, yeah, Nerds I saw a little bit later on, but – this movie was the movie that introduced me to him. So then when he shows up again on Moonlighting, I'm like, oh, it's the guy from Better Off Dead. I've fallen in love with him since then. He just is so good and so good in this movie. And there are things like talking about the way that this movie builds and stuff. That scene of them in the lunchroom when it's like we're on Ricky and Monique and then the camera moves over and it's him snorting the jello. And the way that they transition where he takes the straw and kind of offers it to Lane at the next table and then that becomes Lane's scene. I love those transitions. Oh, and I was going to say, you did mention Monique and Ricky. Oh, God. Which is a whole other running. <laughs> I guess that's not even a running joke. That's just a sud- side plot. Oh, Ricky. Yeah, that's another. That's he's. That's an interesting 
very problematic character, but because <laughs> on one hand it's just oh you feel you know you're kind of I guess supposed to feel a little bad for Ricky because he just is your quintessential eighties I'm here to be the fat kid joke. On the other side, behind closed doors, it's a much more terrifying, if you really stop to think about it, terrifying thing that's happening with this poor foreign exchange student that has to live with these these awful people who essentially just invited her to live with them so that Ricky could date her because, well, Ricky's not going to get a girlfriend otherwise, I guess. So, And Ricky's mom is just, she is a force of nature. I like that she's smoking the whole time, which is another thing you'd never see past the 80s. Yeah, I think there's a good reason we never actually go inside of Ricky's house. It's better to imagine it, yeah, based on his wardrobe. Based on Monique saying that he puts his testicles all over her. Uh, His what? Uh, How you say, uh, octopus, uh, testicles. Tentacles. N-T. Tentacles. Uh, Tentacles. There's a big difference. (laughs) This might have been the movie that introduced me to the term testicles, now that I think about it. Oh, wow. Hey, there you go. Better off dead, not health class. But I also think uh, with the Jello, going back to the uh, cafeteria scene, I think of um, in Animal House. There's John Belushi's famous scene where he sucks the Jello off the plate, so while he's online, so he doesn't have to pay for it. So I thought it was interesting that Ricky, who's this you know, like overly protected nerd, sucks up the Jello with a straw, and then of course Charles Demore snorts the Jello because he's always looking for get uh, for drugs. In the town where you can't get drugs, you have to just buy whipped cream in the can. (laughs) (laughs) Which brought to mind another thing about it being quintessentially 80s. You know, I'm watching this HBO show, Euphoria, about uh, today's teens, apparently. And everything is this tragedy, and drugs are so scary. And every episode, I'm like, it had this exact, with very few plot changes, specific changes to characters and stuff. This would have been a comedy in the 80s, this exact same biblically (laughs) tragic experience of adolescence that's on HBO every Sunday night. And it just made me think of Charles DeMar is always chasing drugs to the point that he snorts snow on the ski slope. This is pure snow. It's everywhere. Have you any idea what the street value of this mountain is? Charles, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold it. Eve. I could be home right now, drinking this monster eggnog my brother makes with lighter fluid. You've been staring over that edge for hours. People die down there. And dying when you're not really sick is really sick, you know? Really. Yeah, I I like that there's the dance, the New Year's dance that is like midway through here. So it's not the big finale of the film. Like so many things you would expect, like, oh, this is going to end at a dance, you know, and I'm thinking of like Pretty in Pink and all of these other teen films or even Carrie, where it's like, okay, we're going to end this thing at a dance. So when the dance comes at the middle, which is kind of weird because it's what, like a New Year's dance? Because most of this takes place over winter break. I guess it'd be a winter formal. I think it's New Year's because at some point, yeah, they're opening Christmas presents and they, when, when the little brother has all the women in the room, he says Happy New Year to him. Another funny thing is they're clearly in 
like a Southern California suburb, but it's also a ski town where they're right at the base of a giant ski lodge with a huge snow-covered mountain. I don't know how California works. Isn't that right? Yeah, but I think you do have to. I mean, I think you can go from Los Angeles to ski in the wintertime, uh, but I think it would take about two hours. Yeah, and such an unusual move to have skiing as your sport. Now, like, I know there was hot dog. Such an and, 80s move. Right? <laughs> like, that is an 80s thing. Ski patrol, thank you. My mom was in ski club in high school in the 80s, so yeah. I just can't imagine teens today being in ski club. <laughs> we had a landfill in this the, in the town that I grew up in, which we ended up calling Mount Trashmore. But the the <laughs> city council redubbed that as the Riverview Highlands, which they then turned into partially a golf course and partially a ski hill. So we actually could ski in my town growing up. But uh, I felt very much like Lane when I would try to ski. Just that whole like agony of defeat sequence. That was pretty much me. I went skiing once when I was 10, and uh, that was it. I'm 50 now. That's what you need to know. (laughs) (laughs) I have never once set foot on a ski slope, and I don't really need to. I'm I'm good. I don't like snow when I'm perfectly standing still and upright and laying face down in it it going a, a, a fast speed. No, no thanks. I can't believe they actually shot that in Utah, like in the mountains, super high up, you know, to do the K-12 stuff. And it's like, with the magic of movies, why couldn't you just do that, like, I don't know, 30 feet up or something? It's like a soundstage with a bunch of fake snow. (laughs) Because they did, everything was much bigger. Like they had, especially with Savage Steve Holland, like he's not gonna, his whole thing is go big or go home. So I could see him up there on the mountain for sure. The thing I like about this movie, too, is that, like, the weirdness is kind of to the side, and then every once in a while it'll kind of come in and and intrude upon stuff. But, like, the stuff with, like, Badger, it's like that is such a side story, and it really doesn't play into the rest of the the movie at all, but it is such a crucial thing. I love that that is there. I love that the, the mailman, played by the incomparable Taylor Negron, the way that he uh, he talks to Badger. Hi, Badger. Your book on how to pick up trashy women came today. Tell me something. What's a little boy like you doing with big boy smut like this? After Badger closes the door, he knocks again and then gets Lane and asks if he can go out with Beth. I mean, just you could cut the Badger <laughs> stuff out completely, but it is so great that it is there. And yeah, when he's got all those trashy women in his room, that is fantastic. And of course, that framing through the legs of Cusack, so good. It was nice to see uh, Amanda Weiss in this role, even though she's not. She she's kind of disappears for a small part of the movie, you know, and we're just focusing on Lane and him trying to get her back, but I just kind of love to see her because she just kind of radiates this just niceness, even when she is being a total bitch and throwing him off to the side for big ski champion. But <laughs> it's her role in this, I think it is, they don't give her a whole lot to do, but I think every time she's on screen, it's just, I, I'm happy to see her. Yeah. She never comes across as evil to me, just a little vapid or like a gold digger or something. She's not like your malicious ex-high school girlfriend where she was really, really, you know, trying to rub it in your face that she's now going out with so-and-so. She's just kind of like, no, Lane, I'm good. You're a little 
creepy and I'm going to go away now, but it's good that we get those scenes of them when they're first getting to know each other or that whole thing at the picnic. I think that that helps show that she's a little dorky too. And yeah, she's never like blatantly mean. I think the meanest that Beth gets is when she's a cartoon character. And I mean, to be fair, that's Lane drawing her. To your point, I think most of the time that we see her is through Lane's eyes and through like the memories of her, like even when he's up at the chalkboard and having the memory of their first time having sex, which is another thing that I don't think you're going to get in too many comedies. No, 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 not at all. As I was watching this movie, I was talking to my husband and I'm like, you know, I don't know what do they do? What, what are teen comedies now? Like I, There were teen sex comedies in the 90s and the early 2000s. There was a ton of romantic comedies, I guess, but those don't necessarily count unless, I guess, they're set in high schools. Now, everything I see, like Mike said, everything I see that's geared toward teenagers and starring, you know, people who are supposed to be teenagers, it's just tragic. It's just sad Everybody's sad. It's suicide or drugs or bad relationships or it's just... And I mean, this movie is suicide and drugs and bad relationships, but with comic, surrealist, you know, kind of farcical air to them that I don't think people now really would respond well to at all. Take that show, what, what was it, that a few years ago that everybody was up in arms about 13 Reasons Why. Where it's just purely centered around this girl who committed suicide, and then the rest of it is figuring out, like, what were the things that maybe, you know, drove her to do this. And every single thing that happened in that show to her and to other teens was horrible. It was, like, the most horrific things you could possibly, almost possibly imagine happening to teens if they tried to put some kind of, like, comedic spin on it. And she's, you know, left these tapes for this kid after the fact. I could see the 80s doing that in a comedic way. Like, is somebody in the 80s doing that show in a comedic way? But now I think it's just, oof. It had to be done in a serious way today because of how society has shifted and how we view, you know, suicide and bullying versus how we viewed suicide and bullying in the 80s. I mean, in the 80s, from what I understand, if you went to high school and you were not cool, you immediately got your head slammed into a locker. (laughs) I'm not sure if that was true because I didn't go to high school in the 80s, but movies from the 80s have led me to believe that. And that it was also pretty hilarious when it happened. Now, that's, that's obviously not the case, and bullying is very serious, and suicide is very serious. And I think as a society, we've shifted to become more of a serious society. And I don't think that we have the capability as a whole to be that, like, we're, we're not going to bend too well in this situation to, to laugh at something. If it can't, if a new movie came out tomorrow, that was basically this guy's just failed suicide attempts after Su- failed suicide attempts after pining for his girlfriend that he's clearly obsessed with, everyone would come back out of that movie and just rail it. So you're saying 13 Reasons Why is not a comedy? The seriousness of 13 Reasons Why and Euphoria, had it been presented, you know, if if you were to transport them back to the 80s, I believe that they would have been laughed at as overly dramatic, uh, melodramatic, just, just hyper- 
uh, intensely sensitive. And, you know, I, I think what a couple of things in the 80s, teenagers culturally were viewed as young adults. Right. These they were raring to go. And now, uh, you know, to experience every vice and every danger of adulthood. And it was all about the promise of the freedom of getting away from your parents. At the same time, in real life in the 80s, there was the birth of the concept of stranger danger. There was awareness of missing children on your milk cartons. And I think that has, you know, and that eventually evolved into, you know, the stereotype of the helicopter parents today. And that removes a lot of irony and and context possibilities so that I never once in high school got my head slammed in a locker, but I felt picked on sometimes. Mm-hmm. And when I watched the movie where somebody got his head slammed in a locker, that's what it felt like when, you know, everybody called me a jerk or told me I wasn't funny or whatever it was. I just think things are taken literally now. There's no yes. way to contextualize it to say that, okay, this guy thinks about his girlfriend all the time. He pines for her. And we will express this visually in a comically exaggerated way in that he has pictures of her everywhere. Whereas now you would just see it as like the stalker with the, uh, you know, the, the room full of torn out photographs with all the eyes cut out or something. Yeah, this would be on criminal minds. Yeah, he would just be drawing X's over their over her eyes now at this point and, and things like that. And yeah, I think that you make a good point in saying that it, like as society, we've sort of removed the possibility of irony when it comes to certain subjects or comedy when it comes to certain subjects, which I think is not entirely a great thing. Obviously, we I'm glad that as a society, we've shifted to taking bullying and suicide much more seriously than we were 20, 30, 40 years ago when we were just telling people that eh, it's fine. You'll be fine. Cheer up. It's everything. will be okay. I'm glad that now we're, we're doing something about that. But like you guys are saying, this movie is just an exaggeration of what it feels like to be a crazy teenager with hormones and feelings and new feelings. And like, you know, you're, you're trying to, Teens in the 80s were viewed more as young adults, where I think teens now are viewed still as children. You know, Lane, who, and you are still a child when you're 14, 15, 16 years old to a, a point. And I think when you're, you're wrestling that, your, your mind is going back and forth constantly before, between the, well, I have to be an adult and I have to be mature because people need to take me seriously and I need to da 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 da. But also, I'm only a few years removed from middle school and junior high where I'm still goofy and I still don't understand anything. And I, I, you know, some of my peers are maturing faster than me or I'm maturing faster than other people. And it's just, it's a lot of, crazy feelings and crazy things happening and nobody's experiencing it really the same exact way as you are. And so this movie, I think, I think Steve Holland really, really captures with his affinity for, you know, for animation and his being initially drawn to that cartoony aspect of reality and life, I think really does a good job of capturing that and saying, hey, these are serious things that these kids are going through, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a crack at it and put a little bit of a spin on it because when it came down to it, yeah, none of this really mattered to me when I was in high school, right? Like the, the initial girl for the first girlfriend or first boyfriend, they don't really matter in the long run. 
And that's where we kind of end up in the, in, you know, with this movie is that this whole thing, him trying to do this K-12 to train this thing that he could possibly really kill himself on or actually killing himself by his own hand to get this one girl back to just by the end of the movie go, oh, you know what? You don't really matter that much. Like, fine, if this is how you want to live your life, then live your life this way and I'm going to go do my thing. I feel like I'm speaking a little out of turn here What with having McBeardo here, you know, the, the author of Teen Movie Hell. But when I'm thinking about recent, and I can't even say recent, like within the last 20 years, teen comedies, like, I, of course, I remember all of the, uh, and I do mean all of the American Pie films and that those were a thing. And then I think about stuff like I'm just like casting my mind back over the last few years and I just keep coming up with movies that might kind of be for young people, but they really focus in on the adults. Things like cock blockers, where it's like, hey, we're having this big party, but then it's, no, these are the parents who are trying to stop the girls from losing their virginity or getting messed up or whatever. And the only other thing that I can think of is Booksmart from this year by Olivia Wilde, which kind of felt like a little bit of like a super bad knockoff. And that might offend people because I know some people absolutely love Booksmart. But while I was watching it, I was just like, okay, I can't really connect to this. But then at the same time, I'm like, should I be able to connect to this? Or is this aimed at such a different audience in a different era that maybe I am not that person that should actually be able to get 100% of these jokes or think that these things that... I kind of think are dumb are actually very funny. So I haven't seen Booksmart, and I think the the girl. I'm not sure what age the girls are supposed to be in that movie. They are right as they're graduating. So they're like 18. Yeah, and one of the things that I find hilarious is that one of the girls has like dedicated her life to going through all the AP classes and doing all this stuff and getting into a good school. And there's a great scene where she realizes that all of these fuck-ups that she goes to high school with are all getting into good schools. And she's just like, that's not the way that this is supposed to be. And that I found actually very hilarious. But after that, it was just like, okay. And it, it kind of fell into that. We're going to this party, but we really want to go to this party. And now we ended up at this party. And it's just that series of misadventure kind of thing. I kept yeah. thinking in Book Smart that it was made for people in their 30s. Yeah, I think that that movie did seem geared to people my age range, which is kind of strange that they would be 18 in that movie because, I mean, that's a whole generation behind me now at that point. So I'm not, I'm even removed from whatever is high schoolers are into now. But the closest thing I've seen recently that I would consider a teen comedy is actually a show, and that's Pen15 on Hulu. I'm basically that age, but the whatever year, early 2000s, that those girls are starting their freshman year of high school. I think I was probably maybe in eighth grade or seventh or eighth grade. The, the creators, who are the, also the actresses, I believe they're 31 and they were playing 13-year-olds. Yes, they are. And they're brilliant. Like, it's incredible how they play that. <laughs> it's, it's astounding how good that was and how good they are. And so, yeah, I think that that's probably the closest... I've come to like a recent teen comedy, but even still, like it deals with some certain more. It has a little bit more. It's not like tragic and serious, but it has some a little bit of serious undertones, you know, themes 
hiding in there. So I wouldn't, it's definitely not like this, like Better Off Dead or One Crazy Summer or even, you know, the John Hughes Breakfast Clubs and things. It's not like that kind of teen comedy. And again, we talk about, you know, teenagers are now children. Whereas when I, I grew up in the, I, the, the teenagers, when I was turning a teenager into my pre-adolescent years were the over the edge kids, you know, yes. so I have a very <laughs> different picture of teenagers in my head. These were scary men and women with adult strength and children's insane minds and appetites between those two extremes. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I mean, I'm sure that that's that's basically what teenagers are still. I mean, I I think that's genetically what just hormonally what they would be. But society why societal, you know, influence is that. They treat that everybody is treated like a kid until I guess they're in their 20s. Sometimes even I still feel like people treat me, you know, a certain way because I'm younger. It's like, but I'm 29. Like, I am an adult. I realize that maybe not in a way that you think, but I am. You know, I was 13 in 1982 was when I started high school. My parents woke me up at 6 a.m. and said, walk to the subway. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I went to high school in Manhattan, about an hour and a half away on the train. They said, walk to the subway, take the subway back when you're finished. <laughs> and this was 1982 New York City subway. Wow. And and this is what we all did. This was, you know, we, we had, you know, and as a result of that, I had run of the city by the time I was 14. Mm-hmm. I now have nieces and nephews who are, uh, I have a niece who just turned 13. I'm screening, um, the last American Virgin in August in Brooklyn. And I, I and my sister, who was this little girl's mother, uh, and again, I just called her a little girl. Um, we all saw, we saw the last American Virgin. I was 14. My sister was 12. There is no <laughs> way I would physically jump in front of anyone that would allow <laughs> to get near that film. And that's, yeah, that's-, that's, that's cultural. That's, uh, you know, you know, for for good or bad, better or better or worse, I you know I think it's it's both and all things. Right, I think that that it's definitely good. I mean, teenagers are like we all said, we agree that you're still a child to a point when you're a teenager, but you're starting to figure certain things out and starting to be interested in things. So it's just it's a weird time. It's such a strange time of being like a, a kid and an adult trapped in the same body at once, and that. Is definitely, I think, what Savage Steve Holland is able to really capture in both of these movies, and I, I think that's just something that he intrinsically understands that that these movies. Well, Mike, in the article you sent us, he he talks about his first sort of endeavor into film, and it was a short about a story that he told, uh, um, but that he he was eleven and his birthday party, nobody came to it aside from a drunk clown. And that's, we laugh, but yeah, that's a sad story. And he says, no, it's not a sad story. It's not a sad story. It's a hilarious story. Like more of those, put them in the movies. And it worked because it is him. It's him drawing from real emotions, real raw, like sadness and devastation that you feel when you're a teenager and, and, and bringing that out and putting, making fun of it and sort of making fun of yourself and and being able to realize it in hindsight that those were things that, you know, made you who you are now, but it sucked at the time. 
that overly overwrought emotion of things like the breakfast club. I mean, that stuff just makes me really queasy these days. I mean, the whole thing of like bringing the gun to school or the cigar burns on the forearms for spilling paint in the garage. I can't help but laugh when Emilio Estevez is talking about taping that kid's buns together. I know. And I shouldn't laugh, but I do. I'm going to tell you, I was 16 when that movie came out, and I hated it then, and I hate it now, and I always found that stuff hilarious. This feels like a movie that John Hughes wanted to make (laughs) and never actually got there. I don't think he could ever get there. I think his head was such a different place. He just had that pathos and stuff. And in this, it's just, I mean, it's more Louis Bunuel than it is, uh, you know, Frank Capra or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you when you say Bunuel, that's, that's an interesting thing. Because I, what I thought of with the animations, there's an incredible uh, short film, a French film called Zero for Conduct from 1930 or 32. I'm blanking on the exact year. Um, that is about a boy's uh, board, an insurrection at a boy's boarding school that is completely uh, wacky and surreal. And there's a scene where one of the kids is doodling. He doodles a little stick figure on a page and the fascistic principal is coming by and all the kids scatter. And the little stick figure like jumps to animated life and runs off the page. And that came to mind when I was watching this. So, yeah, there is classic surrealism going on. I am curious these days if somebody looking at this and just you happen to be the person that I'm going to ask because you are somewhat unfamiliar with these films. Looking at this now, do you look at Monique and be like, oh, well, she's the typical quote unquote manic pixie dream girl or is she something else? I don't think that she's your typical manic pixie dream girl because I don't think that she enters our lovelorn, our lovesick character's life and totally changes it. And, you know, brings chaos into it. I think that she's just a victim of all of the chaos. (laughs) That I think, honestly, I think she was brought into all the... She came from France where everything was fine. And they brought her here. And now she's in this weird, surrealist, American small town that she's desperately trying to escape. That's a movie in and of itself. No, I wouldn't say that she's your, your quintessential manic pixie dream girl. Because I don't feel like even at the end, like, he's totally swept away by her at this point. Like, I think he's just like, I'm my own dude. <laughs> yeah. She doesn't seem to me to serve to uh, exist rather to serve Lane, which to me is right. a uh, manic pixie dream girl quality. Like she doesn't do anything for him really. Other at the right time. Yeah. Sometimes those dream girls can almost feel like, well, like a dream that can almost feel like a, like a Tyler Durden, like you're an imaginary friend. Like she has no, physical weight or substance like Melanie Griffith could disappear in something wild or be a figment of Jeff Daniels imagination. They always strike me as kind of genies too. Like from my dream of genies. They just... I'm here and now you need me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at least his life does start to turn around, but yeah, I think part of that is her and part of it is him just finally gaining some freaking confidence and being able to, you know, when she slams his foot on the gas, that's like the moment where he finally seems to kind of come into his own. And that ends really badly with the car and the water and everything, but at least 
he's starting to get his own traction going in the world. And then I think her again, helping fix the car. And she is the one who knows how to fix the car, which I appreciate that she's the mechanic and she's teaching him. So I, I like that montage as well. They don't play it for jokes too much either in that, in that situation, which would generally be the, you know, oh, oh she's a girl, but she can fix the car. Well, but no, here it's just kind of like, oh, okay, she can fix the car and she's going to teach Lane. And now he's sort of his own man again. Like, you know, like he's learning things. He's learning how to do things for himself. And he doesn't have to be just wrapped up in what Beth is doing. And that just seems like another cool thing about this, this wholly formed person. It's like, wow, she fixes right. the car. because She knows that too. That's cool. When she finally reveals that she can speak English and it, that scene is just fantastic. I love the chemistry between her and Cusack in that. All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play a trio of interviews. The first is with actress Diane Franklin. The second is with writer-director Savage Steve Holland. And last but not least is Charles DeMar himself, Curtis Armstrong. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. 
donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream, art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. So tell me how you got involved with Better Off Dead. Better Off Dead is, I have to say, my favorite film. I really love that film. I mean, it was just my favorite film to do, and I'm so proud that I was in it. And basically what happened was I had been going from film to film to film, and I had been actually offered a lot of nudity and I really didn't want to just keep doing those films. And I thought, okay, three films and then I'm done. Like, I don't want to do anymore. And we're talking about like the beginning of the eighties was very gritty. And then all of a sudden, like those John Hughes films came out and those that opened up roles for young actresses that didn't have nudity, which was so wonderful. And it was just like a life-saving thing as an actress. Um, and as an audience member, because, I, you know, not everybody wants to see that. So some people just want to see something that's funny and makes them feel good. And that's, you know, that's why they want to go out. They want to leave feeling great. So um, what happened was I had done a film called Second Time Lucky, where I played this French girl. And in the film, I played one of the characters I played was French. I played a variety of characters, but one of them was French. And so when I came back from that film, I get the script from Better Off Dead and literally was shocked that I could find a film with nothing gratuitous, which was just really fun and upbeat. And Monique was such a great role model for girls today. And then certainly was, was a very unusual and rare role model. I get the script and I saw that I, I just immediately wanted to play Monique. And when Savage had me come in the audition, it's interesting because he actually, I wrote several books and one of my books talked about how he did the opening for it. And he talked about the audition when I went in, which was the first book I did, which is um, uh, Excellent Adventure, my Excellent Adventure book. When I read for him, he, I think, wanted me to read for Beth. I don't know. Like he wasn't thinking about the French girl that much, but I came in so strong on that. Like maybe it was like Beth or Monique, but like, I just knew I wanted to be Monique. So when I went in, I was like, I really, I figured like, oh, that's why, you know, you don't know, but this is what I'm, I'm going to be really great at. And I just thought to talk like this and said, I think you should audition me for Monique because I think it's very good part. And they, Savage and the producer, uh, Michael Jaffe, started to laugh and they were freaking out. They were like, oh my God. And they said, well, um, 
can you do it? Can you do the uh, accent with a lisp? And I said, of course I can. I can talk like this. It would be very fun to talk with an accent uh, with a lisp. Um, but I think it was Savage wanted me to do it with a lisp because he thought it, make, it would make my character cuter, like sweeter. But then he realized, oh, it's too much. I just went in with the attitude. I really... I know this character. I, you may have other people, but boy, I can nail this. I, I am this. I can make this happen. After the audition, I went home and I was just thinking, oh my gosh, please, I wish this would happen. And so often you go for an audition and it doesn't happen, you know, for, for one reason or another, you know, someone else gets the part or you don't get a part you think you're going to get, or it just, there's always something. And it was just mind blowing that I was given, that I was called the next day, and they said, you got the part of Monique. And I was so happy. I was so happy um, because I, I just love this character. And Monique is probably the closest to who I am as a person. She has um, a good heart, but she's also very hardworking. And she doesn't sort of take no for an answer. <laughs> but like, in a, it's like she's not a bully, but she is definitely like, no, you just do it. And there's no moment in her existence where she doesn't think things are not possible. And I, I just like, there's a stubbornness to that, which I think was really endearing. And I love that idea. And then I just, I think I related to that character. <laughs> like you just make it happen. That's just the way you do it. Monique is a great role model and certainly was then because it, to me, like roles before that for women were like, you either had to be a tomboy to make things happen like you had you couldn't be just a girl who pr could be feminine if she wanted to and make things happen you had to be like a tomboy and so growing up I I was hard for me to relate to a lot of characters that I saw uh, in film and movies um, which I understand is something common nowadays everyone talks about it like what are the role models we have you know and I'm going to tell you right now role models people in film are really important it's really important uh, to kids and uh, you know, even, you know, I think at every age, we look to the next generation, we look to films to solve and find answers to situations. And Monique was one of those characters that she could be feminine if she, when she wanted to, and then she could also fix a car. And she could also, you know, be athletic and ski and she could, um, you know, uh, she could be supportive, but she didn't ever lose a sense of herself. She didn't get lost in the guy. She didn't lose her identity. and. That is one of the things I think that's really cool about that character in film. Well, yeah, we've talked about representation before and just, you know, you being at the forefront of this curly haired revolution and the whole idea of people with curly hair not even having representation on screen and that it was a refreshing thing for them. I lived 10 years before I started acting, you know, in film. You know, I did modeling and commercials and, um, I did so much work, but I couldn't get a break because this was not what America was at the time. America was straight hair, blonde hair, blue eyes. Um, it was the curly haired girl would be like the homely girl or the girl who didn't get the guy. Or it was just, I think, to a certain extent, very comfortable and easy for casting people to just cast it that way. Like, OK, well, then. You know, they couldn't cast, let's say, the blonde hair, blue eyed girl is the homely one. So they, they say, you know, they kind of just sort of went, okay, well, we'll just do this. But the problem is that the role modeling is real, you know, really is. And when you see somebody, I mean, even in, better after when people see Lane, they see themselves. 
guys see themselves and girls see guys like that. You know, the guy who's kind of shy and, you know, doesn't have, he doesn't go after maybe what he wants sometimes. And, you know, that's real. And I think it's really important to see characters like that and see them grow and rise and people role model. So with my curly hair, I mean, seriously, I remember when I got that part in Last American Virgin and all of a sudden everything hit. And I remember thinking, oh, are you kidding me? Now, now things are hitting. Like what happened before? Why was this not, you know, why couldn't I get work before? Why is this now? And it took me years later to realize, oh my gosh, it was the beginning of the 80s. It was the beginning of a time where maybe America wanted something fresh and new and they were, and timing. I mean, maybe it's just the, you know, years of women first in the 80s starting to, I mean, this was really, I remember growing up given the opportunity to try to make a living on their own. It wasn't a given before women, you know, didn't, there were people who stayed home and then there are people who went to work, but now we're talking about women, young women who want to get educated and go to work. So it started this whole, it was like the right timing. Everything started at the right time. And my curly hair, I think represented, it was quirky and different. And on the light side, everyone goes, oh, that's really fun. And like, it's, it's a style, but on a deeper side, you know, it represent more ethnic ethnicity in America. And then it, you know, unfolded into like, you know, more ethnicity, you know, and, and like flash dance and like all the casting just started to open up. And I, re- I saw it happening. I was there. I saw like all the, I saw how that casting opened and exploded. Um, and I guess my precursor was Brooke Shields with her dark eyebrows. She got that dark, you know, ethnic look of the eyebrows in, and then that became popular and it, and it exploded. So it's interesting today because now, you know, ethnicity is so important in our culture. We need to see it. And one of the things I think that's really admirable, and I know people go, oh, I'm so sick of this, but the truth is it's important is seeing different ethnicities and different races be together in a show or be together, you know, and, and also shaking it up, like, like a mixed ethnicity and mixed gender being on a show and they're being friends and they're getting along. And like, that's something that we need to see because I think a lot of times people in the world uh, in, in America are very hesitant and, and shy about it, but if they see it, then they'll go, Oh, okay, wait, maybe we can all, you know, um, work together. Uh, entertainment, I've, I mean, I've been in so long that I really realized, you know, at a certain point how whoever has the money has to say, and there are people who want the money to say, don't get along. And then there's people who want to say, Hey, let's make, you know, everybody get along. So, you know, I think right now it's, what's great is the, the ability for people to entertainment to be exploding in a direction that creates more diversity and more, um, people getting along <laughs> or perhaps talking about what's going on. I don't know. It, it's a, it's a crazy time right now, but um, anyway, I'm, I'm going off track. So much of your role was without words. You know, you had to act with your face so much. And I was curious, had you had to do that before? I did that in last American Virgin. Honestly, I think a lot of times, sometimes uh, at the time, and, and this is just true dialogue is not necessary. There's not a lot of dialogue sometimes given to women in general, but I'm talking the eighties today. There's a lot of dialogue given. It's really interesting to see that. Um, but I, I, to me, I think it, it was very easy for me because I actually, when I was a kid, I was very 
quiet, strangely, as verbose as I am right now. So I really, and I'm, I'm deaf in one ear. I can't hear in one ear. So I communicate very naturally without dialogue. And it never even occurred to me, I think, that that was something that was difficult. But I do think that I always stayed truthful. And I think that's the actor's job is to always stay truthful. I didn't mind it, but I really, I, I like acting. I like acting without words. I think you can say so much more without words. Um, I think sometimes words get in the way of of a feeling. And just a look can say so many things. I enjoy that. You know, I think it, I like to, to mix it up now. But, um, you know, it's funny now. And I, like, even when I see my daughter, when she acts or when she does things, I look at her and I think, oh, my gosh, like she's she does um, comedy and she actually has a Snapchat show that's coming out this this July, actually, a new show, very exciting, called Apocalypse Goals. And they're going to probably do a big advertising on it. It's her first show that she and her comedy partner, Sydney Heller, um, that they're putting out. Actually, Snapchat hired them to do. So it's their own show and it's hilarious. It's going to be amazing. But it's a Snapchat series. So, but when I see her act, sometimes I look at her and I go, she doesn't realize how she doesn't have to say anything or talk. She tells so much in what she does and what her looks and her moves. She doesn't even know that like when she pauses or when she doesn't say anything, she's just beautiful, you know, and that says so much like she says it with her eyes or I don't know, just it's, it's so I can start seeing what other people maybe saw in me through her. Half the film, I don't speak. So you you have to believe that I don't speak English, which is really the, what the, the film's about. It. So I have to kind of respond as if somebody, you know, I didn't understand. But that's the kind of cool thing, because when I do speak, then you read, oh, my goodness, this girl is much smarter than we thought. She's pretending she doesn't understand anything, uh, which is what makes the film so funny. Seriously, the first half of that film was so funny to shoot because all of my shots were mostly reactions to Ricky or Mrs. Smith. So I mean, that was the hardest part was just not laughing because they are so funny. Yeah, what was that like working with those two? I mean, especially, I mean, Laura Waterbury, when she grabs your face. <laughs> and I had no idea she was going to do that. I had no idea. And I, I wonder, I really have to ask Savage. You should ask him, did he instruct her to grab my face? Because it wasn't in the script. As far as I remember, it wasn't in the script. So I do wonder if he said grab her face or if Laura just grabbed my face. Laura Waterbury, uh, she's passed away since, but boy, oh my goodness. What a hilarious and lovely woman. We had such a great time. Uh, in fact, actually, after Better Off Dead, we wound up doing a press circuit in Mexico City. We went down to Mexico together to uh, advertise Better Off Dead or to publicize the advertise. Oh, my gosh. Laura, her voice, that recce voice, that, that high kind of voice, <laughs> was such a great creation of hers. And I, I really wonder if she was powerful, you know, sort of allowing somebody she knew, like she was imitating someone she knew because she was so right on and just, and she and Ricky, like that relationship was just so crazy. The pushy mother, we're in the shy boy, just hilarious. And, and Dan Schneider was so funny. He played it so straight and it was just a pleasure working with so many professionals because everybody came to work and everyone was prepared. Everyone was ready and everyone had something to offer. And I think that's what makes that film so good. You know, you've got, you know, Curtis, 
he is so prepared, such a brilliant actor. He's got all his side bits, all the things, and so confident and so unique. And uh, Danny just being so with the nose spray and having his own, you know, all of us came with our own quirks, but they were all very subtle. And, you know, even um, Amanda, like, you know, Amanda had to play that straight girl who's like, uh, you know, the girlfriend, but she even had her own quirkiness to her. And I just love her voice. Amanda has like the cutest voice. I think we just were very well-balanced cast and we certainly had a blast. I mean, honestly, John Cusack had a great time shooting Better Off Dead. I'm just letting you know right now. (laughs) I'm wondering, I don't know about what happened after, but boy, we had such a fun time shooting that film. Just the bits with David Ogden Steers and Kim Darby. I am just amazed that he can keep a straight face. And the the aardvark coat. Oh, I mean, God. Seriously. What does a, I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, just the, and the TV dinners. And that was such a lovely, you know, section. I mean, it's interesting because I, it would be interesting when you talk to Savage to see what his point of view of if it was what he imagined to what it became. Also, the thing that's so lovely is for me, I go to conventions now and I see all these uh, Better Off Dead fans. First of all, that is not a given. I am constantly impressed with how many people love Better Off Dead. I just actually did a convention with John and people came to us to sign you know, uh, autographs, which was just brilliant. Just so great. So the fact that people remember it and it still holds up. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's things about it that maybe... I don't know, maybe kids don't understand. I'm not sure, but I think it still holds up. What do you think? Do you, do you feel it does? I would hope so. But then again, I was kind of at the perfect age when I saw that movie. I know that people have passed, you know, they try to pass it down to their kids. So that's like a really fun thing. I just, there's something about it. I mean, it's like no other movie. It's a lo- I think the other thing is it's a love story. So you always wind up, it's a comedy and it's sold as a comedy, but you always fe- wind up feeling good because it does have a love story in it. And the fact that John and I wind up together um, at the end and then the paper boy is coming in the shot, you know, like, that's like, a, it's kind of a dream, you know, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. It was great. We got to shoot at actual Roger stadium to shoot that. That was amazing. Was the film a hit when it came out? No, it was not. Uh, we were surprised, but at the same time, nothing like it was out. So there, there was nothing that people could even compare it to. They would just say, oh, it's funny. But they would, you know, the idea was like, oh, it's just a silly movie. And it, it was considered silly because, well, you know, obviously, and I would say this, with, if you've got like critics and they have to, you know, give a review on a film and you can't see that film on DVD originally, I mean, that or like you can see it on VHS originally, you know, you have to give a review. And so you're not going to say it's the most wonderful, you know, you know, mind, uh, mind bending, you know, inspirational film. You'd have to say it's funny, you know, and say, but like, you know, you know, Officer and the Gentleman is a film that you, you know, you want to put your money on. So I think originally when people saw Better Off Dead, people liked it, but they, people didn't run to the theater for it because they was the business was different then, you know, in the eighties, it was, you're still going to theaters and you still have to make the effort to get out of your house, get in your car, drive to the theater, give them your money that you worked hard on and, or take the family there. And it wasn't so much of a family film world. People didn't, I don't know if even people took a lot of their kids to the movies. Uh, teenagers went to the movies more, but I don't know if people, it was more family oriented, 
But as Better Off Dead came out, then it hit the VHS and the beta, and that's when it went crazy. When it hit the college circuit, it went insane. And it was that word of mouth special film that you told your best friend about. And on Friday nights, you got together with everybody, all your friends, or maybe you got together with a girlfriend and you watched that movie. It was the perfect date movie and college movie. So that's actually when Savage and I and, and you know, uh, Curtis and Amanda and all of us heard that, wow, you know, this is a, a big hit and people know what this film is. Because when you do a film, you don't know if people are going to see it or not. The other lucky thing was that because of the internet, this movie has lived on and we were able to see it. Whereas maybe generations before, they didn't get a chance to have their audience see their films because there was no internet. We're like a, one of the first generations to be remembered because our films are still out there. There's a lot of actors, I guess, who would be forgotten. And then all of a sudden these films are, you know, in, in the Internet and they're like, oh, my gosh, like, you know, that film. That's a great thing, too. But better. I just it's such a fun movie. I mean, for those of you, hopefully people who are watching this have seen it. But if you haven't seen it, it is a comedy and it is hilarious. And it is a quotable film. People know all of these lines. I think every moment somebody's can every part of that film people can associate with their own lives for that reason which is another thing i am doing my third book i have two books and this is my third book on better off dead so my my first book was mostly about how i became an actress and my general career and all the different things i did the second book i did um and these are on amazon but the second book is called Di- and i'm going to say the title because it's really long diane franklin the Excellent Adventures of the Last American French Exchange Babe of the 80s. So just put Diane Franklin books and you'll see. Um, but the one that says adventures is about my career in general. If you want to know what my life was like, how I became an actress and, and the work I did. Um, the second book I have is uh, Excellent Curls. And that talks about how Last American Virgin really had an impact on cinema and my role in it and background on Virgin. If you love Virgin, that is definitely a book you should get because the details and the photos in there are so special and really rare. And then the third one will be about Better Off Dead. And this one, Savage said he would do the foreword. And I'm going to have a chapter on every person in the film, whether I talk about working with them or whether they want to write something themselves. Um, I would like to include pictures of people wearing the coat that I wore in the film, which I bring to conventions with me. So every time I go to a convention, I bring my actual Better Off Dead Monique Jeunot coat and people wear it and take a photograph and then they send it to me and I'm going to put them in my book. Sometimes conventions come up last minute. So if people follow me, I always bring my coat and they can try the coat on and we'll take pictures. So uh, you can send it to me and you'll be in my book. Honestly, people who love that film are good people. They have a sense of humor about themselves and they appreciate relationships. And all I can tell you is you're just a good person. Dan, where do you find time to write books because you're going to the conventions and then you're still a working actress as well? And I also teach acting too. I teach to kids. I don't know. I always, when I, when I work on a book, I know that it's going to be probably like a year or so process. And the great thing about working on a book is that I let, things sit and I think and I write. And so it's not a rushed thing. I mean, it's not a a process that I feel is 
It's a labor of love. It's not a labor of profit. And I know that it's going to stay with people. So I want people to always feel like when they pick that book up, they're going back in time and they're, they're, I'm bringing up memories for them. I think that's probably why, you know, it just, I just, it, it comes easy. And, and I think, uh, that's the key to, to good writing is that you are, you need to write as opposed to you have to write, you know? So I just, just the process very, like, I just do it. And I, and if I have an idea, oh, and I, I'm going to write it down and uh, I don't know. And I just think it's important because it's just a great film. I'm honored. It was funny once somebody actually mentioned, oh, you know, you should write a book and put people, you know, not write a book, but they said, oh, you should include all the people wearing the coat. And I went, oh, that's a brilliant idea. So it really is for the fans. This is for the fans. I think the last time we talked, you were just getting ready to do the Amityville murders. And I was curious how it was revisiting Amityville after you'd been in the second one all those years ago. Oh, I could tell you, if you haven't seen Amityville murders, I really recommend you do. Uh, not just because it's a film I'm in. I've, I'm in a lot of films, but this one, special. This one was special. There's so many experiences. Um, and also, by the way, the Blu-ray, I just saw the Blu-ray uh, extra features. What a gift. So when I was 20, I played the daughter in Amityville. And now I played, then a couple of years ago, I did Amityville Murders and I played the mother in the same story. So first of all, no other actress has done that where you play the mother and the daughter in the same story. People have been brought back, but no one's ever done those two perspectives in the same story. Now, especially because it's a true story. Now, this makes it even more intense and the first story in Amityville, The Possession, I had to play. The, I played the daughter, and it was loosely based on Amityville, but basically the same. There's an abusive family, um, but I had to stay pretty innocent, although there is very non-innocent things that go on in that film, in The Possession. And then this film is based on reality. It's more real. And so the difference is that when it came out, when it first came out, people were looking at it as, was it a horror film? But if you're a horror fan, you could be disappointed because you're thinking, where is the blood and the and the eyeballs popping out? And where is all the, you know, the guts and all that? But it's not because it's based on a true story. So it's really a docudrama. Anyway, for me, when I did this film, it was a dream come true. It really was because I got to play a real person, Louise DeFeo, who obviously tragically was killed by her family. I mean, I don't know what could be worse in your life then be murdered by your family, like your son, like, oh my God, that's it's almost like a, that's like a Greek tragedy. It's like horrible. Um, and also that she, I wish that it had never even happened. I mean, that incident, but on the other hand, you don't want to forget it. And you want to create a situation where we start having pathos for how it happened. And perhaps maybe again, when people watch it, maybe they will do some thinking and maybe if your family has a problem, maybe you'll go get help so it would never escalate like this. Um, I think that is really why I think, for me, why I do some, you know, these kind of things is because you, when you do something like this in a film, people learn from it. Maybe they know somebody who has a situation that's dangerous. Uh, maybe they are ignoring signs and then you sort of see in the family. So anyway, that's, that's one aspect. Um, the other thing was obviously the ha house is haunted, so that is that house 
has got so much bad feng, like feng shui energy in it. And I, as I researched, I found out more people died in that house since the Amityville murders. So it's not just even one person who died, like, or th- that family. After the Lutzes, I think there were two more deaths. Um, and I don't know if, well, like, some, like a suicide, and there was another one. So, like, that's odd that so many people die in a house. Um, it's been turned over a lot. I will one day go and visit it because I'm from Long Island, but I never got a chance to go there. So one day I will go. That is definitely something I want to do is visit that home because it influenced my life so much. Really did. And uh, Burt Young, by the way, is in the film. He um, uh, he played my dad in the first film. And in the Blu-ray, there's so many shots of us like seeing each other for the first time and talking. And I thought, oh, they captured it on film. I didn't even know they were shooting it. So I was like, oh my gosh, this is so sweet because I had no idea they were even doing this documentary kind of thing while we were shooting. It was great. It was great. I just, it means a lot. And honestly, it's the best performance of my life. And I've had people say, yeah, you're right. That's right. Because they can see, I mean, even though it will never compare to Better Off Dead or Last American Virgin, or there will always be people who like, you know, Amityville Possession best. Um, And that's totally cool. This is my best uh, adult performance. I mean, very rarely does a woman you know, of my age be able to get a nice juicy role. So I, I'm very proud of it. Really proud. Diane, thank you so much for your time. This is great talking with you as always. Thank you for spending time with me. And I hope we talk again. Maybe on a Bill and Ted. Where'd you get the name Savage Steve? Oh, Mike, it's so lame. Um, when I was a kid, I was playing soccer, and I kicked a kid in the... I didn't mean to. It's funny. It's written somewhere on the web. Like, I kicked a kid like I'm mean, but I accidentally kicked a kid, and um, I started crying because I felt so bad because he got blood on his... Like, his mouth was bleeding. It basically, it was p- people calling me Savage because I was, like, such a wimp about it. And then when I went to high school, like I went to a different part of town and nobody knew that story. So whenever he's calling me, you know, when I was, some people knew my nickname was Savage and it sounded kind of cool. So I kept it, but nobody knows. It's just basically they were calling me a wimp. Isn't that a sad story? It is, but you know, it works. <laughs> I like how your IMDb is Savage Steve Holland. Oh, right. It is, bro. I mean, it's always been that. It's like when I went to, um, I went to CalArts and I was like, you know what? I should just keep that savage thing in there just to separate me from like really good people. Like the other Steve, like Steven Spielberg and stuff. So people know it's me, you know? So I added the savage in my little films and just always kept it. And you said you, you met Curtis. Yeah. Yeah. He was at a, the blue water film festival uh, here in Port Huron a few years ago. And they were honoring him with the golden mitten award for being a Michigander. And yeah, I got to go out to breakfast with him and interview him. I called him uh, breakfast with booger, of course, but yeah, yeah. hell of a nice guy. I really like him. Did you happen to read his book? It's actually really sweet. I mean, his, 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 he's a very smart what am I trying to say? He's, he kind of got into this thing of like, I remember when we were doing One Crazy Summer and we were in uh, Boston, like getting ready to go to Cape Cod to do that movie. And you'd hear people across the street going, hey, booger, booger. 
the guy's really intellectual. And so it's funny that he's ended up being booger, you know, um, but he's a very smart actor. And if you, if you read about like how he ended up with that part and it kind of is the part of a lifetime, you know, but I, I don't know if he really wanted to be like booger for the rest of his life, but um, I, I just think he's just one of the best, like serious comedic, any kind of actor. Like anytime I've ever had like another movie, like at a Disney channel or Nickelodeon sort of thing. And, and they say like, Hey, we're hiring a person. I'm like, well, why wouldn't you just bring in Curtis Armstrong? Cause he could be anything, you know? And he always, he always adds something and he plays these really divergent characters. And most of my things that I force him into or trick him into, but um, he's just such a good actor. And it's just so interesting that he's sort of <laughs> stuck being booger. God bless him. He's like super crazy into like uh, Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle. It's like, oh, wow, I had no idea that you were interested in this stuff. He's obsessed with that kind of stuff. And he's uh, so, I, so in my um, new show, he was, uh, wait, what was he? He was, oh, Mr. Rathbone, Nigel Rathbone, who like played Sherlock Holmes. And then um, let's see, what else do I want to tell you? Oh, he's also kind of a, a scholar about Nielsen, um, Harry Nielsen. Do you know who he is? Yeah, the, the singer songwriter. Yeah, he's sort of obsessed with. Yeah, I feel like he's almost, he's going to write a book or he's doing something about Harry Nielsen, but he's got so, such eclectic, like really cool tastes. And he's just really interesting to talk to about all this stuff outside of Booger, you know? Tell me a little bit more about you. Did you grow up in Connecticut? Yeah, I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut uh, until I was 18. Um, it was a nice place to grow up, but I couldn't wait to get out of there. Um, all those weird things that happened in Better Off Dead were part of this weird world that I that I really did grow up in. Um, everybody's an exaggeration, of course, but um, everything was real uh, that that was in that movie. Everything really happened to me like that, except for the dancing hamburgers. But uh, I th- but I was doing animation and live action, trying to get to Hollywood. Like I had this big dream of being a filmmaker when I was a kid. I saw. Planet of the Apes, you weren't born yet, but it was like in 1968. And it was like, I was like eight years old and my dad took me. And it was a big deal. And I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I was like, I got to make movies. And so I, I really was like laser focused on just doing nothing but making mo- movies from that moment on. I would make them these little Super 8 movies with my sister and her name is Squid. And I would say like, okay, you're going to jump off this cliff, you know, and she would she'd do it and then she'd get hurt. And then I would say, you know, I would, she was always my stunt person. So she wouldn't do it anymore. After a while, she wasn't, she wasn't my go-to person to do that. So I had to start drawing people. So that's how I got into animation because my sister quit basically. (laughs) How torn were you between doing full-time animation versus doing full-time live action? When I did better off dead, the producers were kind of worried because I wanted to throw animation in there as much as possible. Um, and the real honest reason was that if the movie failed, I could at least show that I could do animation, you know? Uh, yeah. So I was like, let's try everything and put it all in there. So I could, like, if, if I didn't, if I failed, which I kind of did, um, I could go out and say, well, but look at my movie. It has this chunk of animation. And I did that in a feature film. It was kind of cool to lay out all, all that stuff in one movie and have all those different things that, that like, like animation, live action and claymation. And, um, but it was really out of fear of never working again. Did you do the claymation bit too? No, it was a guy named Jimmy Picker. He did a thing called Sunday in New York, which was about, um, oh, the mayor back then. It was, anyway, won the Academy Award for short movies. Back then, I would just go to everything, every movie thing I could see. And I went to the short movie um, contest for the, um, for the Oscars, and he won. And it was super, really great uh, claymation. And so when I got my movie, I was like, I wrote that part specifically so that I could get Jimmy Picker because I was really impressed by his animation. 
How easy or difficult was it to get Van Halen for that bit? That was not so bad at first. I tried again, like for One Crazy Summer, and they had broken up, and they were really, really ugly about it. But um, I got David Lee Roth, of course. But for Van Halen, for that piece, they were really cool about it. Everybody was still together. I think I don't think the band broke up at that point. So I was as stunned as anybody that we got that piece of music. It was great. So you said that you went to Cal Arts. Tell me a little bit about that and what happens after you graduate. It was the only college I applied to because I saw it in a catalog and it was my dream kind of school. And it was like, I'd only been to California once on like a Wally world trip with my dad. I really thought I was going out there to like beach boys and beaches and all this stuff. And I got accepted. And um, when I got there, I, I don't know if you know anything about Cal Arts, but it's in this place called Valencia. And when I was there, it was just the building, which was the school of 700 crazy people. And there was nothing around it. There was a deli like down the street, but there's no houses or anything. And I didn't have a car. So you're pretty much sealed into this place, this insane asylum. And it kind of worked, though, because there's nothing really else to do. So um, I just spent all my time making animated movies and live action shorts. And, um, and if you want to go deeper, I'll tell you another twist to this is um, I had to make money to make these little shorts. So I um, got a job as the receptionist at CalArts. So when you come in, and you see me and I was all, you know, looking pretty nice and not like the freak that I am. And then um, when I would answer the phone, I realized that sometimes people would call up and they would say, um, you know, I need, do you know anybody at the school who can draw a poster? I'm paying a $200, you know, and I would be like, yeah, I do. And so I would call the art department and say, hey, there's a guy looking for, you know, to make a poster for, he's paying $200. And after a while, I was like, wait, wait, why am I sending these to the art department or the film department? And so when somebody called up and said, like, we're making these little TV commercials and we just need the, somebody that has a budget, you know, the only budget we can do is like a student person. And I'm like, hold on, I know the perfect guy, his name's Savage Steve Holland. And then I would connect to myself. And that's, and it was great. And so that's how I kind of put myself through college and paid for my little short movies. And so now the craziest twist of all this is that at the last day of school on graduation day, there was these really excelling, really good students that were going to meet with the um, trustees of CalArts for a, a, a lunch. And one of them in the film school uh, couldn't make it. So the president of the school, because I, I happened to be sitting there at the receptionist thing, said, do you want to come to that? And I'm like, sure, whatever. And so I told him that story of how I would snag those jobs. And so after that, everybody gave me their cards. They thought, what a sleazy guy. This is awesome. So, yeah, so it was great. So I had a lot of really nice connections, you know, when I left school, and it was very helpful. It's underhanded, but it's very super smart at the same time. It's, it's deviously evil, but wonderful at the same time. It's just like I, I really felt bad the first couple of times I did it, but then I was like, wait a minute, this is cool, and I was getting a little portfolio together, and I was getting other people work because they were, like, painting cells for me and stuff. So it was a little industry got stuck, uh, got started by my, my sleaziness, Mike. How do you parlay that into your first feature film? Because you're coming out of the gate with your first feature at such a young age. It's kind of unheard of these days. Yeah, I was so lucky. I, and I really know that. And what's funny about it is that I kind of knew I was super lucky, but it was just one of the things where everything fell into place. But now I look back at it and I'm like, it's a, it's a one in a billion chance. I just can't believe what happened. But in a nutshell, this is it. I had made a uh, short film a little live action film about eight minutes long about my 11 year old birthday party. When I was 11, I had this birthday party and nobody came except for this drunk clown. And it was super sad and depressing. So I made this sad little movie about it. It was supposed to be really sad, <laughs> but 
But of course, um, everybody thought it was hilarious because it was so pathetic. And so they were laughing at all <laughs> these sad moments, like the clown tried to pick up my mom and stuff. And my, my sister would go out and ring the doorbell and hide behind the, the bushes. And I was like, they're here. And there's nobody there. So everybody thought it was really like a giant comedy. It got picked to start this new film festival called Filmex uh, here in Los Angeles. And it opened for this really weird but cool movie called Eating Raul. It was packed. Like there was everybody because it was like as strange as it sounds like L.A. doesn't really have a, or didn't for sure have a film festival. And that was the first kind of L.A. film festival. And opening night, they played my short. You know, I, I just went home. And I watched them and they laughed their heads off at my my suffering. And then um, I went home and the next day I had like 100 messages from people. And one of them was like Henry Winkler, you know, the Fonz. And I was like, this is incredible. So all these people wanted to meet me. Uh, to say like, oh, I really loved your movie. And what do you got next? And I was like, well, I have this, this um, movie better off dead. And they were like, well, that's great. But you know, you've only done this eight minute short. We can't really like invest in like a feature, even though it's sort of along the same vein of like stupidity in your dumb life. What I did was I get <laughs> another weird twist. I started working this company, which was entertainment tonight, which is the show. And back then it was just starting off. Like it was just, I was there from the ground floor and I just had this thing where I would do this little cartoon on it every Friday night or something. And it was really bad and really dumb, but they paid me like $300. And so I would take that money. And what I did was I made another short film that was about 15 minutes long. And this one was like color and a little more money. And what I did was I put a lot of the people that were executives into the movie that I had met. Cause I remember I met all these guys from, from the, the um, screening of, uh, my birthday party movie. And I was like, Hey, well, if you, you know, if you don't think I can make a movie because I haven't made, you know, a longer one, I'll make a longer one, but you've got to be in it. Cause it'd be great. I have these scenes with crowds and this guy's cousin and stuff. So what happened was that when I screened it, and I only screened it like once, it was called Buster's first date. Everybody came to it. Like all these executives from other studios, like competing studios came to the screening. So it kind of meant to them like, well, you know, there's so-and-so from Fox and there's so-and-so from Warner brothers that it, I like created my own fake heat, you know, about it. And so, so that kind of helped um, motor into finally getting this better off dead script to um, CBS theatrical films. That was again, the left thing kicks in here because Amy Heckerling's um, fast times, had just kicked ass and they were like, we need something cheap and a teen movie because they're, you know, easy to make and they're not expensive and, and we don't know anything about teen movies. And so just at the, the luck of whatever, somehow my script ended up on this guy's desk and he met me and the rest is, you know, history for about a year, but then I failed, but um, <laughs> the movie did get made. So that was awesome. Yeah. I'm so surprised. I mean, cause when you write it down and you say, Oh, it's a comedy about a kid who wants to commit suicide because his girlfriend broke up with him. It's not really putting a lot of butts in the seats as far as like, here's my, my 30 second pitch. Exactly. No, it, it, it was more about the, the other dumb jokes. And so I had to really be clear that this guy, he doesn't kill himself and he learns that he shouldn't kill himself. Um, so I had to be really careful about that because you're right. It's a really depressing topic. And nowadays, you know, you just couldn't do it, but I had, um, Harold and Maude to fall back on, which was, um, you know, back then it was pretty ahead of its time as far as being really wild and, and cool. And in that story, it was, you know, the guy was kind of faking killing himself, but in mine, it was like a guy who fails at killing himself. So I could say like, look, I know it's, it's a depressing topic, but here's this really cool cult movie, Harold and Maude. And, and if someone hadn't seen it, they were like, Oh, I get it now. So how does the movie coalesce? What happens for you next? Well, the, the w real way it happened was that my script, obviously, 
it, it does still take a while, and it was still going around the studio, but it got a little bit of heat because of that little short I had done with, with other people. And so the script ended up on a lot of people's desks. So there was this guy named Michael Jaffe who worked at CBS Theatrical Films, and he was tasked with finding lower-budget movies. They were making like $20 million movies, and they said to him, look, these teen movies are you know kicking butt now, so like, can you find one and just do a budget of like three $3 million. And so we're not wasting like 17 million. We can just cut it down to three. And so, um, Michael got my script and I always remember this cause it was like, at that point I was like, I've done this for, it seemed like forever, but it had been like two years that I've been on this path to try to get better off dead mate. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm getting old now. I'm like 22. Oh yeah. So I'm dying. Ancient. So, <laughs> so, um, so I, you know, I talked to Michael on the phone and he's just really kind of gruff he sounds like a guy who chomps on a cigar and he said yeah i want to talk to you about your script so we went to lunch and sure enough he was a guy chomping on a cigar and oh so, so the reason why he wanted to meet with me was because he had another teen script and it was a typical teen you know tits and ass kind of thing that was just not my thing i'm not like a puritan or anything but it's just like i'd rather go for the jokes and like just you know the boobs and stuff like that um so he said, you know, we need a rewrite on this teen movie. And I saw Better Off Dead and you've got the, it's got the great comedy in it. So would you be interested in rewriting it? And I had brought um, the storyboards for the movie. And I said, look, I'd rather make my movie than rewrite your movie. And I just want to let you know that. And so I said, here's the storyboards. You can literally, and I do these stupid little drawings, you know, and, um, but it, it showed every shot and how I would do it, you know, where the camera would be and how, I mean, basically how long it would take to do a setup and stuff. So he hadn't seen anything quite like that before, the little doodles that like, you know, lay out exactly how the film's going to be shot from beginning to end. So you could almost see the movie happening, but in cartoon form. And that's, you know, why my stuff looks so cartoony, because that's how I frame everything like an idiot. But so he took it home and he said, you know what, let me think about that. I have to call my boss, but you know that you make a good point. And it was about two days later and, and, I, and it did work. And he called me up and he said, you know what, we want to make your movie. And it was like, Oh my God, it was, it was huge. Like I said, I, it was such luck, but I was like, I felt like I'd struggled for years to get this thing done. But you know, nowadays I, I was just so lucky. Obviously you had a little bit of, of studio help, but who helped you put together the casting and the production and all this kind of stuff? Because it's massive. Now you're making your first full length feature film. Again, I was just led through the process, basically, by this guy, Michael Jaffe. Um, he is a producer who's done a lot of TV movies. Uh, he, he's sort of famous for his TV movies. So he knows how to do things cheap and fast. And um, I think we had like a, a little over $3 million to do this thing. And, you know, it had all the skiing stuff and some, some pretty big stuff, but not that much. And a lot of sight gags. He basically pulled together that, I mean, I really was starting from scratch as far as like, because my crew was just people I knew that had a van or whatever, you know. So I have to say, Mike, one of the coolest things that ever happened to me was the first day of shooting when I pulled up to the set and there was just streets filled with trucks. And I'm like, whoa, somebody's moving out or something. And it was like, no, these are the trucks for the movie. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, I was used to like six people and a ladder, you know. And so um, basically we got uh, casting people um, that were the people who did – I'm so sorry, I'm forgetting her name, and I feel like an idiot right now. But she had done um, Karate Kid and stuff. So he just knew people then that had done a lot of really cool stuff but were more of the TV budget. And um, – you know, everybody I met, like the camera people and the uh, the AD I met was um, this lady named Judy Bennett, who used to be Woody Allen's um, 
or still was Woody Allen's uh, AD. And, you know, he was my hero. So um, I was just really cool. So I got to really work with the cream of the crop people. I, I, it just couldn't have been a better first movie for any human on earth. I was reading the screen, the screenplay last night. Oh God. <laughs> I think it was labeled as first draft. So I'm not sure if it was or not, but yeah, the Lane Meyer character really seemed very Woody Allen-esque in that. I was telling you about my dad taking me to Planet of the Apes. My dad was also, he's a pretty grumpy guy. He's really like David Ogden Steyer's um, in the movie. He's, he's that guy. I mean, it's pretty much, that's who it is. And so, but the only thing that would make my dad laugh was Woody Allen movies um, and the stupid jokes in them. So I was like, wow, if that can make my dad laugh, then, you know, there's something to that. So that was kind of where I got my, not my intellectual humor, because I don't have any, but my sight gag humor. I mean, his early stuff, like Bananas um, and Take the Money and Run, just had so many great, stupid jokes that were so, so stupid, but they were magnificent, you know? Right, like him playing the, what is it, the viola in the marching band? Yeah, yeah, he's in a marching band playing the cello or something. It's like, geez, that's funny. I, I mean, I, just him, he would pull up to a parking spot and get out of his Volkswagen and just fall in a manhole. And... I, I mean, I guess he doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore because he's old or whatever. But back then, that was like the best, that was almost airplane style humor. And I just loved it. So how does the character change then from the Lane Meyer of the page to the Lane Meyer that John Cusack portrays? I think I told you that I had met uh, Henry Winkler because of the, the um, short movie. And he had me come to his office and he, he actually gave me a little office there in the Xerox room to write my script. I had an outline of it. And so that's why I wrote Better Off Dead. And while I was doing that, um, Henry would have me come in. He, he introduced me to Ron Howard, and they would show me what's happening with uh, uh, Night Shift. Uh, that's when Ron Howard's making his first movie. I think it was his first movie called Night Shift. So I could see the process, and it was super wonderful because then there was also a lot of running gags in Night Shift that I just loved. So um, I was super inspired to do my running gag stupid stuff. And... Um, so what happened was they had made uh, The Sure Thing with, with Cusack. And they were like, if you ever get your movie made, because they weren't going to make it, but they were being really helpful. And they said, if you ever get it made, you got to meet Cusack because he's great. He's a perfect teen. You know, he's going to be a teen star someday. And I'm like, wow. And so when I got the movie okay, uh, Greenlit, I asked if I could meet Cusack. And I did. And we hit it off really well. And John's way more serious than I am and much smarter than I am. And he's more thoughtful than I am. So he wanted the character to be more, uh, I guess, sympathetic. You know, the way I wrote Lane, he was very a buffoon. You know, he just got his ass kicked all the time. And John wanted to bring an element of, like, sympathy to the guy, like that you like him and you're rooting for him. And I think that's just naturally how John is. Um, so he kind of made Lane a little bit more John Cusack than uh, Woody Allen. And I was delighted. I mean, it was sort of like something I didn't think about was like I would have run out of steam uh, with this character if I just kept, you know, doing sight gags on him all, all the whole, you know, hour and a half. And so I was really grateful that John had that choice. I think this was right after Hot Dog the movie. Was that inspirational for the skiing or did you already have the skiing in mind for this film? I, it's funny. I had the skiing in mind for the movie because I thought nobody, I, nobody had really done it. I was really – this is so lame, but – um in um, Her Majesty's Secret Service with the famous George Lazenby Bond, there's a sequence in there where George Lazenby, I'm sorry, 007, gets shot and he loses his ski and he skis the rest of the stunts, uh, the, the chase, uh, on one ski. And it, I was like, it blew my mind. It was the coolest thing because I was really into skiing. And I'm like, 
how, how could that have happened? I mean, that is so neat that he did that. And so I just stole that. And, um, but then during that hot dog came out, cause I was like, I'm like, I'm going to make a ski movie that things like that happen in. And then hot dog came out. They didn't get my one ski thing that I already stole. I thought it was okay. I didn't think it was quite as funny as it could have been, you know? And I, so anyway, I was like, okay, I'm just going to continue with my ski thing. Cause I'm going to have this surprise ending where John skis on one ski. And um, what I did was I hired the guy who directed the um, stunts for a hot dog. His name was Mike Marvin. And um, so I knew that I had the guy who could really deliver really cool ski stuff. And I was really excited to have him. And he did a great job. Oh, that's funny. I actually had Mike Marvin on the show before. Get out. He's such a good guy. Was he, was he a good guy? Oh, yeah. He was terrific. We talked to him about the hamburger, the motion picture. <laughs> I, didn't know, I didn't know if he changed Mike and he was just a real dick or something. Oh, no. He was great to talk to. <laughs> he talked to us about hamburger, the motion picture, and about uh, the Wraith. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. He's done great stuff. He's just a really talented guy. And I loved, like I said, I couldn't have had a better guy to do the ski stuff. And what was really cool is, uh, I, I mean, I was sort of learn as you go. Because like I said, I was just a short film guy, but we had kind of mapped out how he would take sequences a week ahead of us going to um, Snowbird to film this stuff. And it just was pretty flawless. I mean, I screwed up a couple things, but um, what was funny was like he would shoot stuff that was like it was snowing. And then I, when I got there two weeks or whatever, a week and a half later, you know, it wasn't snowing and I had sequences where, you know, John and Diane are skiing and then all of a sudden it's a snowstorm and it, it really bothered me. But I guess now that I've seen it a hundred thousand times, it doesn't bother me as much. Laura Waterbury, was this her first film? That's a really good question. I don't think so, but um, she blew my mind. I mean, the whole Ricky Smith and Mrs. Smith thing was completely different from how I kind of, I don't think I wrote it so much like that. Ricky was supposed to be this he was based on a neighbor that I had that would stay home and actually croquet. And he was more of a guy from the South, you know, when Laura came in, it wasn't how I pictured it at all, but she was so fantastic that I was like, if only she had a son that was more like the Ricky that I wrote, but then Dan Schneider came in and did his Ricky thing. And like, it was, it was unbelievable. I mean, it was so funny and it just had us dying. So a lot of the stuff that um, Dan did in the movie, he lets go of his balloon and then he jumps up to get it which is probably my favorite part in the whole movie. And um, that was his Dan. He, he would just say, watch, I'm going to do something. Just give me one chance, you know, and he would do it. And it was fantastic. And, and like when you first meet Dan and he goes in and, and he walks by the door and then he keeps walking because he's shy or whatever. I mean, that, those are things that were not planned, but he just did on his own. And I was really impressed. So I was talking to Diane Franklin last night. And Whoa. She, and she wanted me to ask you the thing where Ricky's mom grabs her face she says that that wasn't in the script and wanted me to ask you, is that something you told her to do? I think that was Laura Waterbury. I can't imagine anybody else doing that but her because they were the kind of people between Dan and Laura where, you know, we'd say, okay, basically you're sitting here and all I'd care about is lighting and stuff like that. And then I'd say, let's rehearse the scene. And then she would do something like that. So I'm going to give it to uh, Laura Waterbury because I don't remember telling her to do that. And I don't think I wrote that. It was just genius. It was so cute. It was so funny. But that was the greatest part about this movie. And it really never happened again was that it really did crack us all up. And it was before monitors, you know, if you can imagine that, Mike, like we actually all had to stand behind a camera off to the side. Like, like there's the scene where um, Kim Darby is holding the goop and she's making a speech about, you know, her magazine getting wet in the snow and all that stuff. And when she was dropping that goop, we were all dying so bad. It was like one of those things we had to do 20 times because we just couldn't keep it together. And I was hiding under the table because I couldn't look anymore. So that's, that's how the scene 
was filmed without the director looking at it because they just couldn't anymore. Kim Darby was freaking brilliant in that. It was so funny. It was so funny. And it was just, again, it was just this gift because, you know, you write this stuff and it's pretty, like, if you read the script, like, that's why I went, oh, no. We had a live reading of it in San Francisco and, like, I forgot how crappy it is. Like, but when you add the people like a Cusack or a Curtis or a Dan Schneider or Laura Waterbury or, you know, Diane and, and Amanda Wiss and it, or, or the guy Aaron um, Dozier who um, played um, the, Stalin, they just added everything. It just made it look like I was a genius writing because it came out so funny, but it really wasn't. It was just how funny these guys are. My script was just like a, I, I don't know, a template or, or something, you know, it, I was just so lucky to have these guys. You said that a lot of this was based on your real life. Was there a real Charles DeMar? Yes, there was. Um, Charles was not quite like that. He was Lane Meyer and Charles DeMar were my two biggest heroes um, in school because they just didn't care. And that's what I loved about them. Um, Lane's dad was the principal of our high school. And um, he did what you would think. It was very Ferris Bueller. Like he would come in in his pajamas because he's like, what's he going to do? Get in trouble? His dad's the principal, right? So he took advantage of everything about being the principal's kid. And like, you just, you were, I was just so impressed by that. And Charles was this guy that he wasn't, he wasn't as dumb as like, like Curtis at all. He was actually a guy who was very into art and he was a fantastic painter. And he ended up actually making um, a lot of really beautiful um, movie posters that are out there somewhere. If you ever want to Google him, Charles DeMar movie posters and they're fantastic but he was just somebody just that name was just so perfect and like curtis just just glommed onto it so beautifully and um so yeah those are two real guys and i just found them to be like guys that i wished i could have been when i was growing up who in the movie is closest to you then just the bad parts of <laughs> of lane meyer you know the, the, the whole girlfriend thing i did i did actually think about killing myself once i climbed on this I don't know if you've ever read this, but it's true. I climbed on like a plastic garbage can. And it's like, it's that scene where John's in the garage and he's going, wait a minute, I haven't been to New York City yet. There was that moment. I was like, you know, I, I, maybe I shouldn't kill. I tied a, like an extension cord to a pipe. And then a, I was like, God, you know, this is forever. Like, I don't really want to do this. And I was taking off this noose going, okay, that's, that was the closest I've ever come to being doing something really stupid. And then the, it was a plastic garbage can. So the plastic garbage can caved in. So I fell in the garbage can with this new filler in my neck and um, the pipe broke and started to flood the garbage can. So I'm basically drowning in a garbage can. And then my mom comes out and she starts yelling at me for like breaking a pipe. So I was like, this is my life. You know, <laughs> it's like how much this sucks. But uh, I really was very distraught about my girl dumping me for the captain of the ski team and all that stuff is real. But then that's when I really said to myself, like, God, you just, you know, you got to solve these things. And so w what was great was I, this girl, this um, foreign exchange student came, her name was Talia, and she had no one to talk to because she spoke French. And so I became friends with her and would goof around with her because she, it seemed like she didn't understand anything. And then at some point she just said, no, my name's really Joan. And I went to France two years ago when I was really ugly and nobody talked to me. So I went on a foreign exchange program. And uh, so I just don't want to see any of those people. So they don't know who I am. And I was like, well, this is it's like a movie. You know, this was so cool. So, so she had this fake French persona as Talia, and it was just so neat. And so um, I just loved her. So she, she was kind of the Diane character. Everybody in the movie is perfect. And I love even the smallest roles. I mean, for God's sakes, Taylor Negron. I love that guy. 
he is so cool. And um, I mean, what happened with him was one of the people who bought my, didn't buy my script, but was looking at my script to make it was Mel Brooks, if you can believe that, in his office. So next to him was this guy that was friends with Amy Heckerling. So I would visit with them and I would visit with Amy and she said, well, look, we're having this party for Johnny Dangerously. You should come. And the first person I met at that party was Taylor Negron. And I didn't know he was an actor or anything, but he was the most unusual, really cool, funny guy I think I'd met up to that point. You know, he was just so interestingly looking and his weird talking, you know, and stuff. So I said to myself, if I ever make a movie, I'm going to put Taylor in it. And that's when I went in to make that short movie. Um, Taylor was the first person I called and he said, sure, I'll be there. And so he played this like really mean um, ice cream salesman in that kind of way. He's like really snotty to people. And it was just, God, it was genius. So of course I had to have a part for him. So he was the mailman and better off dead. Oh, he's so good. That scene with him and Badger. Oh my God. Oh, it's so funny. He's so great. And that little Badger guy, like, I still don't even, I don't know if I ever even met him. That's how, how he was actually playing Badger as sort of like this weird little person that nobody spoke to, you know, that was just on his own little world. And um, I just love that guy. He was so funny. And if you look at um, the first time he shoots the laser gun, um, you see... It's one of my favorite parts. I don't know why, but he he didn't know that it was going to explode. Like like he just thought that we put it in post, but we put this little explosive in it. And if you watch it again, he just craps his pants right in front of the camera. It's just he didn't really, but I mean he just jumped so hard like he was supposed to look like he's super super cool like using this laser gun, and then it exploded, and he's just like <laughs> it was so cool. So another character who's got a fantastic name that I imagine has to be based off a real name is Johnny Gasparini. Oh my God, you're so funny because I was thinking about Johnny today and wondering, that is so funny. But yes, Johnny Gasparini was our paper boy. He was in our neighborhood and I, I was impressed with this kid who was probably like 11, had a job before I even had a job. And he would literally come to your door and knock on it and say, hey, your mom owes me, you know, it was probably $14. Uh, or no, it wouldn't have been that much, but let's say $7. And of course, I just got home from school and I'd be like, well, Johnny, uh, that's my mom's paper. I don't have anything to do with that. So, and he goes, well, you know, somebody's got to pay it $7. And so he would sit across the street because I'd say like, she's not home. So he would sit across the street and just watch the house. <clears throat> and he was just really quiet and like, you know, just tough looking kid. And so it was, I just at some point made a short story about him and how, how crazy and evil he was, the, the dangerous paper boy that, you know, watches your house until your mom finally comes home. And of course she never did um, at the time he was there. So he would come back the next day and it would start all over again because um, she was working, you know. And so it was just funny. He was, he was one of my first short stories was Johnny the paper boy and it was Johnny Gasparini. That uh, switchblade comb that his character has. I love that. I, I used to look at that stuff on the back of comic books, and th that was one of the main things I always wanted in my life but never got, you know, a switchblade comb. So I was like, I'm going to give Johnny a switchblade comb. Because the thing about movies is you can go to your prop guy and he'll just get you anything you want. And it's just like, I'm like, really? I could get a, 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 a switchblade comb and he'll bring it in here? He's like, dude, give me one second. And like, oh, I just loved it. And the way he handled it, that kid who played uh, Damien Slade was so perfect. Tell me about working with David Ogden Steers. I, he's very serious, but the thing was, he kind of really liked to break out of his character for that. Like, he played it very, very seriously, which was perfect. He played it perfectly. I hate to say this, but sometimes I do, I do say this, but he's a guy who was way too good for my movie, basically. Like, he was really a real actor's actor, and he's like a, he's like a conductor, and he's, he's like Curtis as far as being, like, very intellectual and very smart and... 
and here he is doing my stupid movie and uh, he just ate it up. Like he just loved getting outside of his comfort zone and just being a crazy person, but you know, not crazy, but he, ha- he, he played it so well, but he was just so wonderful to work with. That was, that was just amazing. Again, the luck factor. I don't know. We just read a bunch of dads and I was like, wait, we could get David Ogden Stiers. And she's like, sure, let me give him a call. <laughs> I was like, well, this is the greatest day ever. So we got him and, and Kim Darby. I was a big fan of, um, uh, the, oh, wait, Rooster McQuaid. What was it? Um, uh, True Grit. Wait, what was True Grit? Yeah. I just love that movie. I thought that was so cool. And so I just had this crush on like Kim Darby. And then again, the casting lady's like, well, we should bring in Kim Darby. And I'm like, wait a minute. She seems so kooky, but I'm like, that's perfect. And again, another person who just came in and just had us rolling on the floor. Uh, she's very quiet and very unusual, but when she commits to something like the goop, you know, um, she's just amazing. Um, I had some other stuff that got cut out. Like, I had that she had joined a, a cult. And so Lane was talking about how his life sucked so bad to Diane at one point. And he's talking about her being in a cult. So I had her at the airport and it was the cult of Gumby. And so I had all these people in Gumby costumes with her and she's handing out leaflets on Gumby because I used to like Gumby. And it was so dumb that you can't believe um, something could be that dumb, but I did it and uh, I got cut out, but she committed as this you know, like Gumby fanatic. And it was very amazing. So someday maybe that'll be in the uh, unseen scenes. Oh, that'd be nice. The Criterion release? Don't hang on to that thought, Mike, because I I think I've thrown it away and I just hate myself. Oh, no. I know. It's terrible. I moved and then I had a box and it said, all your short films. Uh, and I put the box somewhere safe and I got rid of everything else. And about a year later, I opened the box and it was like some toy cars. <laughs> it was so painful. <laughs> but I had all the um, outtakes of Better Off Dead in there and stuff. But there was some pretty dumb stuff that I cut out. Thank God. Another small but very crucial role to me is Mr. Kerber, Vincent Schiavelli. What was he like in real life? Oh my God, he's just a prince. He's so sweet. I can't, you know what? I met him again. I, he was in Fast Times and I met him at Amy Heckerling's house and another adorable guy that was just sort of like, oh, you're going to make a film someday? Well, put me in the film. And, he's, and you know, you, you, when you look at someone like that, you're like, you're a huge star, dude. Are you serious? And he was like, no, I would love to be in a movie to make it. So, so anytime anybody, you, I could have met anybody that was a semi-known actor that said they want to be in my movie. And I tracked them down and I gave them a part. Um, and he was one. And uh, the other was uh, Chuck, Chuck Mitchell, who was in Porky's. Chuck Mitchell used to sit uh, on Sunset Boulevard with his, with his uh, big Cadillac out front. And, he, and it said Porky on the license plate. And that's when I first moved to L.A. And I would drive down Sunset Strip and I would be like, oh, my God, there's a car that says Porky, and there's the guy playing Porky, and he's smoking a cigar right on the street. That's like a huge star. And then um, I, I swore on that day that like I saw him, and I was like, oh my God, if I could just work with a huge star. You know, it wasn't like Jack Nicholson or anything. It was Chuck Mitchell of Porky's, and I was like, if I ever get a movie, I'm going to put him in it. So that's um, why I made him the Pig Burgers guy. Tell me about working with E.G. Daly, because you've worked with her several times since then. Yeah, she's such a good, she's so sweet. Um, I love EG. She was up for Amanda Wiss's part of, um, of Beth. Here's where I landed on that. Amanda is so sweet and beautiful and stuff. And so it's kind of fun to see her be kind of a jerk, I think. And like she kind of was a jerk in the movie a little bit. But there's something about um, uh, Elizabeth Daly that she, like if you fell in love with her, like you would um, deserve anything that happened to you because she's so like, like she's really pretty and, you know, 
I, I think she's just trouble, but she's not, you know, she's like the nicest person, but she looks like she'd be trouble. So I was like, Oh God, I really want you in this movie, but I'm not sure how, um, because I think that you'd be like, you know, Lane deserves this if he's, if he's dating such a hot girl like you. And I don't, that doesn't mean that a man is not hot. I'm just saying that in a different way. And so, um, I said, you know, she said, well, I sing. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. That's perfect. Cause I'm going to have this big dance number. And I said, so you'll be the singer. And, um, it worked out. And so, she hates that dress that she wears. It's so ridiculous looking, but um, that's how I got her in there. And then uh, we became really good friends and uh, she's also a voiceover actor. So um, whenever I did any animation, I'd always have her come in because she can do like 20 different voices. She's amazing. Anytime I have a, a job in voiceover or anything, um, that's my first call. I love her. Yeah. I have to say uh, Beth and Roy, they have the most thankless parts being the villains, but they are perfect. Yeah. Well, um, there's a little gossip about uh, Roy. I had another actor, and I don't want to diss him, but um, he's from a famous singing, acting family, and he was playing Roy. And we had our first cat, and it was kind of a good get. Like, it was sort of like one of his first movies with this really famous family. And so he came in for the reading of uh, this cast reading, and um, he kind of just didn't, he, he was sort of just mean, but nothing funny about it, you know? And I, I swear I left that meeting. That's why I'm not telling you his name because I left that thing. And I said, I'm screwed. My movie's doomed. You know, the bad guy is awful. And so the producer luckily said, well, you know what? He is terrible, but you just have to fire him. And I'm like, oh God, I can't fire anybody. I'm going to make the movie with him. You know, I can't do that to somebody. And he said, all right, you, you know, you're not going to, you you should learn this lesson, but I'll do it. But um, you just can't have somebody wreck your movie no matter how much it hurts their feelings and so the next night he was gone actually no we shot a couple scenes with him actually we shot a couple scenes i did try and then he was even worse when we shot it stuff so we did about two days work with him and then um he was really bad so we got about a Three days later, we kind of pushed all the other stuff with Roy Spell into the back of this, the schedule because of that. And this guy came in, and he, he I didn't know who he was, this blind-haired, goofy guy. And he was standing right near me, and we were watching dailies that night because you know, we were working, so we couldn't really meet other actors until after work. So we were out watching dailies, and I heard this guy come up, and he goes, hey, who's the, little, who's the fat surfer guy? And that was me he was pointing at, you know. So I was like, what a dick. <laughs> and so they said, hey, Savage, come over here. This is uh, Aaron Dozier. Uh, and, and he introduced himself by saying, hey, who's the best damn busboy in Los Angeles, Savage? And I'm like, I don't know. And he goes, you're looking at him. And he said it in such a Roy Stalin way that it was genius. And I was like, oh, my God, you are it, dude. And uh, so that's where we got him. And he was, again, somebody that I just didn't have any idea who he was or anything. And just luck, you know. Luckily, the other guy... Didn't do such a good job because we got Aaron Dozier, who, he, you know, kind of quit the business after that. And uh, but he, he would have gifted the world with lots of more Aaron Dozier because he's so fantastic. I'm curious how you managed to get Rich Little in the film, because I, I will admit it took me years to figure out that it was Rich Little doing the Howard Cosell. I would do all these stupid things where I would over overload my actors with stuff. Like, for instance, with Diane, I don't know if she told you this, but I said, I need you to have a list so that you'll be um, sympathetic. I said, you're so pretty that, you know, if you have like a list, maybe people will be more sympathetic to, that you're not. And then you have to speak French, you know? So she was like, oh, this, 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 this. <laughs> and it started so bad, but she did her best. There, some of it remains, you know, in the movie, but not a lot. Um, so she always laughs at me for trying to pull that off, but she couldn't do it quite as well as I wanted it to be done. Or so, you know, we had to cut around it. And with, with Yuji Okamoto, um, I asked him to do the Howard Cosell. I said, you have to be Howard Cosell 
but you have to have a Japanese accent. He's a fully American guy, so that was like the other thing that was so retarded about it. But he tried his best, you know, and obviously he's a guy who probably didn't really watch Howard Cosell as much as some people, and I just thought the whole Howard Cosell thing was just a funny voice. I knew a kid in school that actually was cursed with having the voice of Howard Cosell. He just literally talked. He talked to me like, Savage, what a delight to see you today. And I'd be like, God, dude, really? Is that really how you talk? And so that's where that character came from. And so um, I had Yuji do that, and he just couldn't pull it off. And he even knew it, you know. So I was like, oh, when, I, when we saw the final cut, it was like, that joke kind of doesn't work because of my own stupidity. It's not Yuji's fault. So, again, this guy, Michael, Michael Jaffe, the producer, he's been in the business for a really long time. So he, like, knew everybody, you know. So he just called up Rich Little and said, hey, come, we need somebody to do a Howard Cosell. And, um, Fred, and we also had Barney Rubble that I had to do, um, that he did both of those. So, yeah, so that was Rich Little. And since he was so great and gracious and came out of nowhere to help us, um, I put him in one crazy summer. Yeah, that is such a nice little uh, cameo at the end there. That is fantastic. Yeah, just a free, free trip to Nantucket for the guy a couple of days and just a little big thank you for him. He was just so nice. I saw Better Off Dead probably hundreds of times when it was showing on cable as a kid. But from what I understand, it wasn't necessarily that big of a hit when it came out. No, it was not a hit. And th- that's why I was asking about <clears throat> Curtis's book because he has two chapters one is like better off dead right when we're about to do it and everybody's happy and excited and then it's like chapter the next chapter is like when it comes out and then savage has no more friends you know luckily it was a really cheap movie to make so it wasn't quite as humiliating but it wasn't any kind of like fast times or anything like that like my dream but then what saved the movie normally if a movie disappeared it just go away forever and then what happened was things like Blockbuster appeared, Blockbuster Video, um, which was, you know, VHS tapes, what's that? Um, and suddenly, like, when you go to Blockbuster, I would say, like, hey, do you guys have better up there? And they're like, yeah, but people keep stealing it. And I was like, I don't know if that's good or bad, but it, it ended up being it was actually pretty good. And then it was on, then cable came up, like Showtime and all that, and they would just play it and play it and play it because I think it was probably super cheap to buy and fill time with, you know, because it was not a big hit movie or anything. So that kind of brought it back from life. So my life was ruined with failure. And then all of a sudden people knew the movie and I'm like, I know you didn't go to the theater to see it. How do you know it? And they're like, Oh my God, we rent it every week, you know? And it was like so cool that it had a second life, you know, and that just changed my life. Does that then help get one crazy summer greenlit? That's interesting too, because this guy, Michael Jaffe said, look, your movie might fail. So what you should do is is have a plan B and you should have another script. And I'm like, wait, it's not going to fail. It's going to be huge. And I'm like, yeah, but you should just sell. While we were testing it, it was testing really good. Like I was so excited about how it was testing. We went to colleges around the country and like kids were going nuts. So they were very, Warner Brothers was um, distributing it and they were very, very high on it. So this producer guy said, you should write another script. So I did that. And then and this so we shot One Crazy Summer before Better Off Dead came out. That's how fast it was to make the next one. I went, it took me like eight days. I went to my friend's house and just said, I need everybody to leave me alone. I wrote One Crazy Summer in eight days and handed it in. They bought it and then Warner Brothers bought it. And I was like, oh my God, now I'm really into this thing. This is incredible. So what happened was that um, when Better Off Dead came out and it didn't do so good, uh, they kind of gave up on One Crazy Summer because by then I had shot it and they were like, well, you know, this is the second one. It's going to suck too. So they didn't do any publicity or anything. So it was sort of like, that was the end for me. For years, I thought that One Crazy Summer was the first movie and Better Off Dead was the second movie. 
because Better Off Dead always felt like it was a little more cohesive, I guess. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. It, it, it wasn't, but the reason the reason why is that I I, I, got, I have to admit I got kind of greedy with the second one. I was like, I'm going to call every comedian that I that I love and see if they'll be in my movie. So <clears throat> it got a little out there. And um, the other thing was like John didn't like Better Off Dead, so it was it was much harder to make him a hero, not a hero, but to be my lead in the second movie. Um, so that's why you know it, it seemed like Better Off Dead he was more into. So it was, it's just a more, he's a more sympathetic character basically. And so that kind of helped the movie be more cohesive, but you know, I just was throwing every joke I could against the wall in in this, in one crazy summer. So that's why it seems a little bit like it was just a lot of stuff going on. I could see a whole movie with the Stork brothers. They are amazing. I know. (laughs) Again, what happened was I met people like I, I had met Bobcat came in to read for the Joel Murray part and he wasn't right for that, but I, he took a bus like to to come to this audition, and he just moved here from Boston. And I was so impressed that somebody in Los Angeles actually took a bus to an audition. So I drove him back because he was so funny, and then I just was mesmerized by him. He was so funny, um, and he said, "You should just come see my comedy. I'm going to open at the Comedy Store, you know, in a couple nights." And so I went there, and he just blew my brains out. Like he was so funny, and just had the room in the palm of his hand. And I was like, "This guy is a huge star, and he's got so much original jokes." I mean, a lot of a lot of the jokes, obviously, in One Crazy Summer are from his act and stuff. And you know, I had some stuff roughed out, but then he would say, why don't we do it like this? And it was 100 times better than what I wrote, you know. So I was, again, just so lucky to have him. What was it about Better Off Dead that Cusack didn't like? We went to dailies every night after shooting, and we would laugh our heads off. Um, I, he says he didn't like the way it was made. He said he didn't think – he told Diane at some point that um, – no, it wasn't Diane. I'm sorry. He told somebody, I read it somewhere. He said he didn't like it because he didn't think it was well-made. That's it. And, and I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that makes sense. I just don't think he, he liked being, I don't know, a, a goofy guy or something like that. He's a very intense person. I know now that I know him more, I, I'm surprised that he even did what he did, you know, and as the character, but he, he, he claims he didn't think it was well-made and because it probably wasn't that well-made because it was just my cartoony crap um, on a $3 million budget, you know. Um, it wasn't um, Schindler's List, that's for sure. So maybe he didn't like that. I don't get it because I like him in comedies more than anything else. Like, I love tape heads. Oh, yeah. No, it's great. No, he's great in comedies. Um, I just think he, again, he's a smart guy. I think he's a little more intellectual than I am. And I think that my stuff is a little... Lowbrow for him, I would say. That's what I would say. I would say it was lowbrow. And he's like, Cape Heads is a smart movie, you know? I think that Better Off Dead is as well. I mean, especially the way that you have the jokes constructed and everything. You're, you know, having the whole idea of those constant wrecks into Rocco's car and, you know, <laughs> I mean, just the rhythm of everything. I mean, I mean, for God's sakes, the whole thing about people throwing away a perfectly good white boy like that. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how many many times a day I say that, you know? Some of the jokes like that one um, just killed. Like, um, And my other favorite is when, when Mrs. Smith says, you know, is lighting up her cigarette and, she, and he's, she says, moonshine or whatever. And it's like, Pap, reminds me of the moonshine that Ricky's pappy used to make. And he's like, Mrs. Smith, no, boom. And it just blows up. Something about the timing of that is so fantastic. And so some of those jokes worked really good, but I, I guess it's just a, like with John, like when he's acting with Diane, he's, it could have been smarter, more smarterly. That's not even a word, is it? More, 
intelligently written. Um, but really, I just had a bunch of jokes and sight gags, you know, and I just had to put in dialogue. That's why there's really minimal stuff. And a guy says two dollars a hundred times because I didn't know how to write like dialogue or anything. <laughs> So that's probably why John didn't like it and stuff. But so it was just hard when the second movie was even stupider, you know. So I was like, hey, John, you want to be in a stupider movie? And he's like, get away from me. But again, I mean, my God, the Mark Metcalf stuff and with William Hickey, I mean, all of that is fantastic. Oh, thanks, Mike. I'm so, that's so sweet. Thank you so much. Yeah, I was a big fan of, um, of Animal House, like everybody else. So I was like, wait, do you think I could really get that guy? And it's, it just kills me that you, you put out the word. Like, my first actor I ever got was Curtis. And uh, he was up doing Clan of the Cave Bear uh, up in, like, Canada in some cave. And I was like, if I could just get Curtis to play Charles DeMar, like, I would just have the best movie ever. And so I put out the feelers for him, and I'm like, can we really contact this guy? And then we didn't hear from him for a long time. And I was like, I guess my dream isn't going to come true. And then he writes in his book how he literally was in a cave. Like, they would helicopter him up to this cave for that movie. And <laughs> he didn't get the script till like, a week later and stuff. So when my dream was over, it's like... I finally got this thing. He's like, I would love to be in your movie. And I was like, oh my God, I've got Curtis Armstrong. This is the best movie ever. That was before you know, Cusack, I think. So I was just thrilled. Well, what was it about Curtis that, that turned you on? I mean, what had you seen him in that really inspired you? Risky Business said to me that here's a guy who's the second banana kind of in a show who's stealing the show. Every time he was on screen, I was looking at Curtis. I was like, this guy is so funny and he's such an unusual looking guy. And he's stealing this movie. So I just walked out of there going, that's the biggest star I think I've seen in a long time. So I made it my, my goal to get him in my movie, no matter what it took. And God, I just totally got him. I couldn't believe it. He just played um, confidence, you know, like he wasn't afraid of anything. And, um, but he was kind of a nerd. And that's exactly what I needed for like Charles. And uh, I'd just never seen a guy. He, he, again, it was just that thing where, when you look at a movie and you say like that character is something I've never seen before. Um, he's smoking a pipe, you know, like his dad would and stuff. And he's a teenager. Supposedly he was probably 20, 25 when he did the movie, but I just thought he was amazing. And I still think he is. So was it pretty much a natural that when you did one crazy summer, you're going to get him for that as well? Yes. Yeah. Again, I like to thank people that take a chance with me. Um, so I brought the whole crew that did Better Off Dead to Cape Cod and Nantucket. And, uh, and if I, could, I, I actually had parts for Amanda and for um, Diane. I had a part that got cut out and stuff. But, you know, if anybody was nice to me and was in my stuff and kind enough, I would try to get them in the movie if I could. Um, so, yeah, Curtis, I, I just decided at that moment that if I ever make anything else, Curtis is going to be in it for sure. What was that experience like making One Crazy Summer? It was kind of a dream come true, but a little bit, it was definitely harder because it was, um, it was on location. So it was six day weeks because you, you know, they don't want to spend money for hotels too long. So they, they jam everything into a six day week. And considering a lot of it was on boats, I don't know what I was thinking when I was writing this. I thought it'd be really fun, but it's not that much fun to be out on a boat, you know, 18 hours a day or whatever we, not 18, but like 12 hours a day. And, uh, you know, everybody's getting seasick. And, um, so it was hard because then you'd get only Sunday off. And then um, you're exhausted, you know, and by the time you wake up, it's Monday again, and you start all over again. So it was a lot more work, I have to say. It was um, it was challenging. Like, John not really caring about that much about it made it a little, a little heartbreaking for me, I have to admit. 
you know, I had my usual people, and then I was able to get like my heroes, like uh, Rich Hall and um, Joe Flaherty. You know, which I just I couldn't even believe the guy was in front of me. That part balanced it out, like the amazing things of like the actors that I was able to get for it, and the little things that like Bobcat did, and there was and where we worked, it was so beautiful and so cool to be there. And actually, being on the ocean when it was done was amazing, but it was uh, a very very difficult shoot as far as like people getting sick and stuff like that. And I, I felt bad. How did uh, Bruce Wagner get involved? Bruce, I guess he came in and auditioned. He must have auditioned for um, Uncle Frank because there's no way, other way I knew him. He was a writer guy and, and he's sort of a hip guy. He's very unusual. Like He was just perfect to be this paranoid freak show. Uh, so he just nailed it in the, in the audition. And then I brought him to a bunch of other stuff, like how he got into college and stuff not knowing that he's actually like this incredible writer and he's another person that is way too smart for my stuff, but he was super secretive about it. Like he never let us know that he's this really incredible writer. And he wrote one of the um, Nightmare on Elm Street movies and stuff. And uh, he's just a really good twisted person. And uh, so anyway, that's all. I think he came in an audition. That's what it was. And I just had never seen anything quite like him before. And that's the kind of character I love when somebody, if somebody just blows your way and you're like, I've got to have that person. And he's really kind of like Uncle Frank, which is the best part. So he, he's, <laughs> you know, when you, when you set him up for something and, and you're like, okay, now in this, he goes, yeah, I know. Look at the, look at the sad man, make everybody laugh. And I'm like, well, but, but it's <laughs> Bruce. That's your character. He goes, no, I know, whatever. And he was just sort of this, he was like, really like Eddie Eeyore uh, in a great way. And, and just, God, he was funny. He was just really funny. So I was very fortunate. I actually got to see how I got into college at the theater. Oh, my God. Really? Were you the only one in there? Well, it was me and my mom. <laughs> well, just tell your mom thanks. But, uh, yeah, that that was another kooky story. Uh, I'll tell it really fast. Uh, we were talking about how Better Off it was on cable. So the Fox network was starting up. They had some conventions somewhere and Better Off Dead was playing on cable. So between these meetings, these, the new guys at Fox were watching cable and wasting their time and they were all watching Better Off Dead. And they're like, we need that guy. So they contacted me. I came up with this story. Oh, it was Beans Baxter. Yeah. So it was sort of like a teen James Bond kind of thing. Um, and I said, this, you know, this is what I want to do. So they actually bought it. I made like 18 episodes for that failed. But the day I was, um, my trailer literally got picked up by a truck and moved off a lot. So we were like throwing boxes out while this truck was like driving our trailer off. That's how much they wanted me out of there. Like, cause my show failed. Uh, so I went for one last lunch at, um, the commissary and this guy named Scott Rudin was the new president of Fox. And everybody was like, wow, you know, I, I had no idea who he was. And so he came over to my table and I'd never met him before. He said, you're savage. And I'm like, yeah, and he said, I saw better off dead. I liked it a lot. I'm like, well, thanks. And he said, well, I have this teen movie and I want you to read the script. And now I had failed at better off dead and failed at one crazy summer. So I'm like, you know, I, I just don't know if this is really me because this is, you know, I failed a lot. And he said, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, you have to show up on Monday. And I was like, wow, what, what's going on with this? And um, apparently they had, they were going to fire the director and, and she was a great lady. But the thing was that nobody knew if there's problems with the camera. And so it looked like all her stuff was crappy, um, but it really wasn't her fault. But so they had moved, moved on, but they, they didn't think the movie was that funny either in the first week of daily. So I have to say that too. So they're like, we need you to go in there, take the script that you have. You're, you've lost this week because we've already shot this week and you've got to make up that time. And you've got Anthony Edwards and Larson Boyle and Charlie Rocket and Phil Hartman and Nora Dunn. And I'm like, oh, my God. Well, OK, so this will be great. So 
I was worried going in because I knew that I'd already blown it twice and, and like a third time would just kill me. But the actors were so neat that I just went for it. I brought in Curtis. I did, you know, the best I could with the script and tried to, you know, make up new scenes. Every day we would go and I would be there with uh, Anthony Edwards and Larfin Boyle, who's really funny, by the way. And they would say, let's try this. Let's do this. Maybe we can make this scene like this. So we kind of ad-libbed a lot of it. Um, but it still wasn't very successful. Um, but I, I still loved the experience there because it was so neat to work with those people. But I kind of knew it, it, it was sort of supposed to be 12 angry men. This is what I was handed, 12 angry men about college admissions. And I'm like, okay, so, so the script is like a bunch of people are locked in a room talking about teens, really. And you'd see a little bit of the teens, but not much. I'm like, well, this isn't really like a teen movie because – You've got these adults talking about them. So I said, let's go into the life of the teens and really get to know them and how they're struggling and stuff. So that's how we kind of changed it around. And um, it, was, it, it was kind of fun to do that with them. Um, but I could tell it wasn't tits and ass or anything like that, which was really coming out at that point, like um, with other teen movies. And I just said, you know what, I don't think this is going to really work, but uh, let's do our best. And like I said, working with Phil Hartman, or Nora Dunn or something like that was just such a dream come true. They would ad lib their stuff, you know, it, it, they were just geniuses. So that's where I brought Bruce. So Bruce uh, had these characters of A and B um, who were on the, you know, the SATs, and we wanted to bring A and B into life. And my, of course, my first thought was, let's animate them because I want to do animation. And the, the producer was like, no, no animation. So I'm like, okay, well, how about Bruce Wagner and Tom Kinney, who of course is SpongeBob and um, was a friend of uh, Bobcat Goldthwaite's and probably one of the funniest humans I've ever met. So I had those two being A and B and um, it was just really cool. Those are probably my favorite bits. And also the slight gags with the, um, the Lara Flynn Boyle's sisters. I love those pictures. Like, well, your sisters love my (laughs) recipe. Oh, thanks for saying that. Cause it was funny because that's, that was like the first scene I think I shot. And I said, you know, we should, so I did those sight gags of the, of the pictures being wacky like that. And, and some of the cast who were worried about me because I'm, I was sort of known for my stupid comedy. We suddenly realized that they were in a different movie there uh, at that point, you know, and they were getting, there was a couple of people that were sort of like, ah, oh, crap, we're doing these kind of jokes. you know. So I was like, well, at least somebody will laugh. And it was you, Mike. What was it like working with Charles Rocket? He is always so fascinating to watch. God, I, again, I just couldn't believe how funny he was. I mean, it, 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 it's just such a miracle when you find somebody like that. Um, he was already in the cast. I didn't cast him or anything, but I just couldn't believe how, how great he was. And he would just, he loved playing a jerk, you know? It was just like his favorite character. Um, and he's really not. And he's a very good riff comedy guy. He's one of those guys that go up, could go up against, you know, a Bobcat or Tom Kinney or something and just be as funny as anybody else. So obviously he was hiding some sort of dark side um, in his heart, but uh, I thought he was just a bright genius guy that, was going to be a breakout huge star because he's handsome and goofy and really funny and sweet as hell. So I'm not sure what happened there with Charlie, but um, God, I always remember him as like one of the coolest people I've ever met, actually. I don't know how many people can say that they've worked with both Brian Doyle and Joel Murray. Oh, yeah, you're right. That's funny. Um, <clears throat> I did. It was funny because one time, this is another one of those dream come truth moments, I went to the comedy store to see Bobcat. And uh, Bill Murray was there, and, and I was like just so blown away that he was there. Even and then he, he, I started to leave to go. I was going home, and he said, "Hey," and I'm like, "Oh crap!" And it was Bill Murray, and 
he said, you're savage, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, yeah, you've uh, worked with both of my brothers. That doesn't mean you're going to work with me. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I know. I did never expect that. He goes, I'm just kidding. I would love to work with you someday. And I was like, oh my God, that's so sweet. Thank you so much. But um, anyway, that never, of course, never happened. But that was just really cool that I did work with two of the Murray brothers that were so cool. Like, and Joel, that was like his first movie. And, you know, he talks about it in some of his stuff on the interweb. And um, it, it was really neat to get like his um, his audition tape from Chicago and he had such a sweet, great face, and he just seemed really green, you know? And um, then somebody said, well, he's part of the, the Murray dynasty, and I was like, oh, my God, that's what it is. And he has that magic, you know? So he wasn't, like, the best actor yet, but we brought him out, and, like, he got, inc- not incrementally, what am I trying to say? He, his, his talent got multiplied every day um, as he worked with Bobcat. Um, what's it called? Consensually. Wait. Exponentially. Exponentially. You did it. Thank you, Mike. He got exponentially better, like by a hundred percent every day. And like his first shots are during the graduation scene, uh, was his first scene. And the guy was so nervous. He was shaking. And then he got to scenes with like Bobcat or Curtis. And they just ended up being such good friends that he just, Oh my God, by the end of the movie, the guy was just a star and it's just so neat. So again, anything, you know, I don't know who to thank for that, but it was just so amazing to kind of discover Joel Murray. He is just such a classy, cool, funny guy. And because of him, I actually had three words with Bill Murray, one of my biggest heroes. And then uh, Brian, Brian, oh yeah, and Brian was already in the movie. Um, so that was cool because I had worked with his brother so that we had that connection. Um, and then Brian was, it's, they're all kind of unique, the uh, Murray brothers in their own special ways, you know, Um they're just really awesome guys. So that was great. Um, and Brian Doyle Murray had one of the best lines I've ever heard uh, when I went to lunch with him once. The waitress, we were shooting in Pomona, California at the Pomona College. And this girl came up to be our waitress. And her name was Lisa. And he said, what's your name? She said, Lisa. And he goes, oh, my God, I finally met her. And we're like, who? And he goes, Pomona Lisa. But for some reason at the time, I thought that was maybe one of the most genius things I'd ever heard. <laughs> but that's, that's how lame I am, Mike. But I was like, whoa, dude, you just, you just came up with that? <laughs> and I've never forgotten it. And then I hired uh, uh, Brian for a cartoon, and, and his voice was terrible. I just didn't work at it all, but I wanted to work with him some more. Oh, no. Um, I, had to, I had to, you know, replace him with Curtis. Oh, well, it's such a shame because I know he does such a great voice on SpongeBob. Yeah, no, he's got a great voice. It just wasn't good for um, the character that I needed. Um, it, it was very, very gruff, um, and I needed a little more sympathy. Like, you felt sorry for the guy again. That's, but that's okay, because he was really cool about it, and uh, we'll move on and do something else with him, because I love him. After you have, I don't want to say the word fail, but after you've maybe not <laughs> no, been so that. successful okay. with your first three feature films, I mean, what happens next? How, how are you able to continue after that? A lot of miracles happened, like the uh, the famous uh, story about the fox uh, the the fox show I did, and then I knew I had nothing left. So let's see what happened next. Um, then I, I I decided to make a sixty second test thing about this stupid cartoon I want to do called Eek the Cat, <clears throat> and I um, spent my own money on it, the last of my money, and um, sent it out to my agents who are now not liking me and stuff because I was failing all over the place. So they kind of just sent it out to places and it sat on people's desks. And I don't know, a couple months later, I got a phone call that this lady said like, hey, I'm starting this network and I just found this tape 
It's been on my desk for two weeks. I never looked at it. And it's great. And it's Eek the Cat. And I said, oh, my God, great. So her, her name was Margaret Lesh, and she was starting. Now the network was doing good after I failed with Beans Baxter. It was doing good, so they were adding a Saturday morning time to it, and they wanted original cartoons. So I had this little test thing, and she loved Eek. And so that's what I did next. I did the cartoon Eek the Cat for like a couple of years. And while that was keeping me alive, I, I don't I, – I mean – I don't want to tell you my resume, but I did a, a bunch of little things like Encyclopedia Brown or things like that. What happened then was really when I'm sort of at the end of everything and no one's ever going to hire me again, I met with Pamela Anderson. She was doing this show called VIP and she would have been my boss. So I was like, well, that's pretty cool. So the, the, the show was, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's crazy. And, and, and the producer of it was sort of like, because I wanted to make it kind of, it's kind of funny and it, it's tongue in cheek, but it's really not. Like the producer was like, this is not a joke. Like, I don't want you doing your cartoony crap here. This is like real. Like, and I'm like, but wait, Pamela's got a pink bazooka, you know, is that really going to, and they're like, yes, but that, that's just her. So she does that. So I went on this run of doing that show for a really, I guess a couple of years. Um, and it was one of these situations where there's a ton of money. You could blow up stuff whenever you wanted to. And the crew was just fantastic, and the cast was great. And then Pam, as a boss, kind of wasn't really a boss. You know, like she was just a celebrity that would come in and out whenever she wanted to. So we would just go and have so much fun. And I, I don't think I've ever laughed so hard, even with Bobcat, because there were so many things that were going wrong in that show, like specifically like Pam having some sort of, you know, um, no, I'm not going to say crisis, but she would leave because she had to go to something like the Oscars or something like that in the middle of shooting. And you'd be like, how can we solve this? Like we have to finish the show, but she's not here today and it's her big scene or whatever. She had a, I'm not going to say genetically altered because that sounds terrible. Um, she had a double who looked exactly like her, but for her face. So I learned so much about filmmaking, Mike, from that, from these desperate moments uh, about how to shoot stuff. And then we would shoot like against find a background that we could bring back to the stage where I could have Pamela say her lines, you know, and then just do, do the rest with this girl, Darlene, who was fabulous. And she was a stunt lady and she was a, a circus performer. So you could make it look like Pamela is doing all these flips and doing all these cool things. So we just, I just had a blast. So in the midst of that, and then I'm almost done, don't worry. Um, in the midst of that, my agent sent me to meet this guy at Disney Channel. And they were starting up their little live action series, which, they, which was pretty new, the Disney Channel. And I went and met this guy, his name was Adam Bonet, and he was super nice. And he said, well, you know, we got this show called Lizzie McGuire. And we just did a pilot and we just wanted to fill it up with people that the kids might get along with. And I've heard you're really funny with kids and stuff like that. So I went to that, that show. And so what it was, was I was doing VIP one week and then I was doing Lizzie McGuire the next week. So it was like being in the Vietnam war one week. And then like at the girl scout party the next week, you know, it was so cool and crazy. And so um, just going back and forth from those two things. So that got me into the kid industry. Um, and that's what I've been doing ever since. The end, Mike. Well, what are you working on right now? Well, I just finished um, th another weird twist. I was like, um, I had now have four kids and two of my older kids uh, did this thing called Junior Lifeguards. And what it is, we live right near Malibu and and it's it's like a seasonal thing where you like look out on the beach and there's a thousand kids with little you know uh, rubber caps on and stuff and they're all basically you get a um uh, you get a patch that says 
junior lifeguard on it in L.A. County. And so kids are just putting themselves through hell, like swimming out to buoys and freezing water and stuff to get this little patch. <clears throat> and my daughter hated it. She just didn't want to do it. But we're like, no, you have to get your patch or you won't fit in with the other kids. You know, that's how I raise my kids. Um, so <laughs> bad parenting 101. And so um, she just hated it. So I, I would watch these kids doing this stuff. And I was like, you know what? I'm in the kids business and somebody's going to make this into like a junior Baywatch. You know, it's just like so funny because you got people like my daughter who hate it. And there's all these characters that are drowning and, you know, near drowning while they're trying to get a patch. And so I did it for two years in a row with them. And I, and I noticed that no one ever picked up on it being a show. I was like, this is an obvious thing. Somebody here, you know, we're in Malibu where all the TV people are, so there must be somebody thinking of this. So I put together a package and I, I went and pitched it and um, I pitched it to Netflix and they were starting a family, you know, uh, unit there to do little movies and TV shows. So they, they just really got it like really fast. And I was surprised by how fast they're like, oh my God, it's like Junior Baywatch. Of course, we're kids, but you know, none of the sexy stuff, but just, you know, crazy water fun. And so, um, they didn't know if it was going to be a movie or a series. And so it went, they went back and forth. They're like, all right, let's do a movie and then we'll do a series. And so that was pretty cool. So um, it's on Netflix now. It's a movie and then it's a series. There's eight episodes. And it came out really cute. Like, I'm really, really proud of it. And I have to say, and I've told you how many stories I have of, of the cast that I love and people that I love. But I have now, like, this cast of kids that are in it. They're, like, from, like, 14 probably to like 20 and they are the best group of kids I've ever worked with like the nicest like they deserve everything that's coming for them because they're so great so we're waiting for the pickup on that and um, that's where I am right now Mike Steve thank you so much this has been terrific talking with you Oh my God. Are you sure? I'm sorry. I ramble off like I'm on cocaine, but I'm no, really not. No, this was wonderful. And I tried on purpose to kind of jump around on subjects because I kept remembering things. So it, it, we fit in perfectly together. Oh, fantastic, man. Well, I love, thank you so much for listening to me because like nobody cares about better off dead because it was a long time ago, but um, I love that you brought it up and you're reminding me of, it was literally the best time of my life. I just remember riding down the street saying, I'm having the time of my life because, yeah. you know, it's a dream come true. When I got that movie made, it was a dream come true, and it's been all down, luckily, from there. people all about their growing up and all that kind of stuff but i feel like i kind of know it all after listening to your recent auto well not that recent but your autobiography yeah i went into sometimes painful detail about that yes what finally pushed you to write an autobiography it's been so long i kind of forgot how it exactly came about but i think it was because at the time I was doing, uh, I had a fan page. I still have a fan page on Facebook and not knowing how fan pages work. I had started doing these long recounting of various events and in the career and something would happen. It would remind me of something that happened on moonlighting or it would happen. It would remind me of something that happened on nerds or something. And I would, I would post pictures and I would, write these things, which were sort of spur-of-the-moment things. But I had a publicist at the time. It was, I think it was when I was doing King of the Nerds. 
and uh, she had been reading them, and she and I think she was the first to say that I could make a book out of them. And uh, she got me in touch with an agent in New York, a, a literary agent, and he uh, also thought that. So it went from there. And was it always your intention to do the narration for it? Uh, it didn't even occur to me at first. They came and said, I think it, 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 the deal was finally in in the contract that uh, that I would also do it. I hadn't gone into it with saying, you know, well, here's my opportunity to finally get hired to do a book on tape. But I did do it uh, because they wanted it. You know, that I mean, it made sense. I don't understand authors who would write, especially actors who would write a memoir and then not do the audible version. But it's hard work. So I just did another one recently. And it's hard. But then if you're writing a book and it's your own voice and it's your own story, I would think that that would be something you'd want to do. I wouldn't do it again, mind you. But I, you know, the whole thing turned out to be quite a lot of effort and stress, which I didn't need. But it was an experience which I don't regret, except once in a while. You did it fantastically, and I didn't hear any of those like annoying moments where you might have to go back in and like redub something, and that sounds completely different. So, bravo! You know that's what editors are for: is to make it sound like it's flawless and smooth. And I'm a terrible one at at, at that because it wasn't quite so bad with this. Because you know, obviously, I knew the book inside out, but my biggest problem is that I tend to read very quickly. I mean, my eyes read very quickly and faster than I can say the words. So I do stumble sometimes on that, but it, it winds up working pretty well. So I want to ask you about your work on Better Off Dead. I've always been confused because I had read through your book that you were working on clan of the cave bear at the time, but that ended up coming out like a year or more later than I, I don't remember when it came out when clan of the cave bear came out. I think I was back in New York, but that doesn't really tell me anything. I, I don't remember where, when clan of the cave bear came out in relation to better off dead, but I think, Clan of the Cave Bear was there was a lot of post trauma with that because there there was a lot about that movie Clan of the Cave Bear. Now it went through a lot of different phases. Like you know, it had originally been supposedly a mini series, and then it turned into a feature, and they were going to do it with a created uh, language with subtitles at one point. There was a lot of stuff like that where they hadn't really nailed down what it was going to be, and it took a long time to get through it and a long time to film. And I remember the first cut, uh, which I actually have a, a copy of, uh, first cut of that movie ran four hours. It was a long process, and its entire end, and on the other hand, Better Off Dead was really fast. As, as you can expect. Tell me about getting that gig. I mean, did you read the script first or was that, hey, this guy, Savage Steve, wants to cast you in this movie? 
it was it was both. It was I was up in in Canada uh, doing Clan of the Cave Bear, and my agent called and said, "There's this guy named Savage Steve Holland," and I said that this I, I that sounded like you said Savage Steve Holland, and she said, "Yes, he's based here, a young." I think he was 24 at the time, young director, and uh, he's doing his first feature, and he wants you. He hasn't cast it yet, but he wants to know that he has you as his supporting male role character. And I said, well, have you read the script? And she said, yeah, it's not really my thing, frankly. It's uh, animation stuff and she wasn't very encouraging and I said well he wants me though right so you know maybe we could you know get some more money <laughs> you know because we've been I've been doing I've done three movies at that point and it was always for relatively little money and no credits and that kind of thing she said oh, I don't know I don't know I don't think that's going to work and I said well, okay no money but how about credit can we get credit and she said, oh, I'll try, but I don't know. And it, the whole thing seemed really weird. You know, it's like the director is casting me in this secondary role before he's cast his leads. And yet my agent is telling me that I don't think she doesn't think I can get anything, any decent credit or anything. So I, I said, well, you know, whatever. So she sent me the script. And then I was reading the script up there. And laughing out loud. It was just so funny and different. And I called her on the radio phone because we were in the Yukon at that point. And I called her on the radio phone and said, I don't, I have to do this. I don't know if you can get better credit or better money, but I have to do this. It's really funny. And she sort of went, well, okay, it's your funeral. So, and by the way, it was the last deal that that agent ever did for me because I moved on after that. I can't say I'm surprised. No, no. That was an indication um, she didn't get it. Is that typical or atypical as far as casting the supporting players before you get your leads? Cause oh, it's very it's very, uh, very atypical, I think, in general. But what happened with Savage, as he said, and I talk about this in my book, is that his two favorite movies, especially Risky Business and Revenge of the Nerds. And Risky Business was, I mean, he liked Revenge of the Nerds. He loved Risky Business. He really loved it. So he had seen Risky Business and he really liked my work. And and then he saw after that, this is, I'm, I'm vaguely recalling what he told me when I interviewed him for the book. And it seems to me that what he said was that then uh, he saw Revenge of the Nerds and he went, my God, it's the same guy, you know, basically playing the, you know, second fiddle to, you know, Tom Cruise or to, you know, Robert Carradine. And from that moment on, he decided that this was going to be his goal. Once he got the go ahead to do Better Off Dead, he wanted me to play the part of of Charles Dumas. I'm sorry, I was thinking was thinking of uh, of of Revenge of the Nerds. I went, that's not right. He decided that I was going to be his good luck charm. 
because Risky Business was, and Revenge of the Nerds were both popular, successful movies, each in their different ways. And so he decided he wanted me in that role. And he cast me in that role before he cast anyone else. And then when I said yes, then he started just sort of running through his favorite, current favorite actors, uh, character people. And he had liked Amanda Wiss, and and so he wanted Amanda Wiss, and she said yes. Diane Franklin, and she said yes. You know, he was sort of building it from the outside in, in a way. When somebody's casting you like that, is there a long period of time before the cameras actually start rolling? I mean, because it sounds like he has to go through that whole casting process and then finally eventually end up with his leads and his, uh, you know, like the more older established actors like David Odgan Stiers or Kim Darby before he can actually say, okay, now we're ready to go. He had an issue. He and uh, Michael Jaffe, the producer, who was the one who was really, really sort of guiding him through it at that point, they both wanted John Cusack for Lane and they were getting resistance from the studio because at that point, John was better known for playing sort of nerd parts. And this was sort of young leading man. And they were going, well, we don't really see him as young leading man. And Savage and and Michael Jaffe had to really fight for it. And again, this is something that you'd be better off hearing. This wasn't my, you know, part. I wasn't involved in this, but but they went back and forth about it with the studio and the studio wanted other people. And, but they just kept at it because they were so sure that he had that sort of slightly hangdog self-effacing, that kind of quality. He was still attractive and a good looking guy, but you know, a little goofy and a little, you know, self-effacing. And it was just what, it was perfect for what Savage wanted. And I don't know how long it took them or, or what, but then, you know, finally, I think what they did was, uh, I don't, I, they, they, they just sort of insisted on it. How do you find the character of Charles DeMar? How do you create that? That's the thing about Savage is that he has a tendency to disclaim his script and say that he hired all of these funny people and they just created stuff. Which is not to say they didn't. You know, there was a lot of improv, and we did make up stuff. And he made up a lot of stuff on on the set, so that he would come over and you know say, "How about trying this?" and you know, giving you ideas, and then you went with them, or you came up with stuff on your own. Whatever he did, a lot of that. But you know, the script was still there. It's just that some of the stuff that was either that either came up on the set ideas that came out of him or out of the, you know, the rest of us. Um, some of them really stand out when we did the read through of the script at the Castro theater in San Francisco a few years ago for sketch fest. And we had a bunch of the actors there. John didn't do it, but a lot of the other actors did. And we were going through the shooting script. That was what we were using in front of an audience. It was shocking when he would get to a part that everyone remembered and it wasn't there because it was something that came up on the set. But at the same time, it wasn't exclusively the actors coming up with the stuff. It was also Savage. 
Yeah, I read an early draft, and I don't remember your line of "buck up, little camper" being in there, which was one of my favorite lines for the longest time. I don't remember that. I don't. I mean, I, don't, I remember the line. I don't remember. I came across a, a notebook I was keeping at the time, and I had written down a bunch of stuff. Some of it got used, and it was stuff that I'd written down to bring to Savage and say, what about if I say this? And he either said no to it, or it just didn't work, or whatever. But then some stuff wound up in there, but spur-of-the-moment stuff. Like Dan Schneider's thing, it's a little thing with a balloon where he comes out of the prom and he's got this balloon and the balloon gets away from him and floats up into the air. And he, he's going after Diane, but he wants the balloon also. And he makes this sort of little jump at it. And then, let I mean, it's brilliant. It's just a brilliant bit of physical comedy that he just came up with. I mean, it was pretty much as the camera was rolling, he came up with that. And it was, it was brilliant and must have been done in one shot because I, I don't think they were completely loaded with balloons. But the same thing happened in that same sequence at the dance or the prom, whatever it was, because we had the thing set up where John and I are sitting at a table and then Roy Stalin comes by with Amanda. And leans down and says, um, you know, good looking date. You should shave her closer next time or something like that. That was the, the line that Savage gave him. But there was no comeback in the script as written. And he said, can you come up with something? And that was the laughing jag, uh, Charles DeMar's laughing jag, which I just, because I couldn't come up with a witty rejoinder i thought of stan laurel who would who's one of my heroes comic heroes and and he would um start these laughing jags that would just go on forever and so i'm basically doing stan laurel there it turned out to be perfect to get out of the scene because it pissed off roy stalin and it was you know as Patton oswald said somewhere it was a perfect example of fighting bigotry with humor and, and, you know, brutality with humor. Patton has written somewhere that it was one of his favorite things when he was young because, you know, that idea of, of disarming somebody by laughter and not, you know, when you're not, you don't have a chance physically was very appealing to him, but it all goes back to Stan Laurel. Was everybody pretty comfortable with the whole idea of ad-libbing and, and working on things uh, on the set as opposed yeah, to... Yeah, I think so. I can't speak for everybody, but it's, it didn't seem like there was any resistance to it. You know, it was a time, that, that period where, you know, people were sort of loose and that idea of improv was kind of fun. I don't remember anybody, John or, or anybody uh, that I worked with closely having a problem with with that i think it was kind of freeing tell me about the top hat i asked for a top hat and they because i knew i was going to be doing skiing scenes and i'm a big beatles fan and i had been watching help a lot 
And I, I guess it had just come out on videotape or something because I'd been watching it sort of on a loop. And I always loved that George Harrison in the skiing scenes was wearing a top hat and he was wearing sort of a cape. I didn't have a cape, although it was it, it looked good with a top hat. And so I asked the costume designer if I could have a top hat for the skiing scenes. And then when we wound up at Snowbird on the first day of shooting, there was the top hat. Savage liked it. And it just it was really basically a tribute to George Harrison. So if I wasn't if I wasn't doing tributes to Stan Laurel, I was doing them to George Harrison. Well, it gave you a perfect place to snort your snow off of as well. As it turns out, yes, that was not planned, but that's true. Yeah, it did give me a perfect place to snort snow off of. How did you snort the jello? I'm sure that had to be some sort of special effect. No, it wasn't a special effect at all. It was just clever camera work because what I did was it's the way it's cut. I took the straw and sucked up the jello and then from another angle i put it up my nose and pretended to snort jello but it was it wasn't a special effect it was just the way they shot it made it look really good and then up on the mountain when i was snorting snow i was just covering it with my hand which was had a glove on it a big glove on it so no one could see what i was really doing how cold was it up there on the uh the quote-unquote k-12 really cold really cold yeah it was, um, that's in Utah, and we were at the top of this mountain, and the, the wind was just bitter. And, I mean, you can tell, because ni- neither John nor I, you, you can see that our faces aren't working. When we're talking, both of us, you can see it. The mouth isn't moving, and it's because it was really cold. And all they had up there was John and me. And I think the the cameraman, Savage, the sound person, and the uh, and the continuity person. That was it, because no one else could stand up, stand it out there. The regular crew stayed down down the mountain. It seems like with Hollywood magic, you could have shot that in a much warmer location. Well, but it wouldn't be quite the same. I mean, the object was to do skiing scenes. And if you were moving everybody up to Utah anyway, you know, really it wasn't that big of a deal to just move four or five people and the actors to the top of the mountain to shoot this scene. And then, you know, again, that was one of the ones where I, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that was improvised. Savage was shooting, it was uh, shouting to us, you know, into the wind. And he was his head was completely wrapped in uh, in scarves and things. So he couldn't really hear what he was saying. But he was, he was shouting out all of these suggestions for what we should be saying. And, you know, the, so the scene changed as the day wore on. But we weren't up there that long. But it was really cold. I also wanted to kind of meet Charles DeMar's brother, the guy that can make that wicked eggnog with lighter fluid. Nothing more about his brother. Just that one line. That's it. You might not be able to top that. Most of your scenes were shot with John Cusack. I'm curious what the relationship was like with him on set. It was wonderful. I mean, you know, we got on like a house of fire. He had started in theater in Chicago, I think. I'd started in Detroit. 
and he had a real keen sense of the moment and he always was able to come up with good stuff and um so it was very easy you know it was really easy what were some of your favorite bits of um either behind the scenes or in front of the camera for better off dead working with vince ski valley was great he was wonderfully weird and into it kim darby as well she had this amazing history you know going back to true grit and you know so i was in kind of awe of her everybody was sort of aware that they were doing something unusual and you know they wanted to wanted it to work as well as it possibly could so everyone really put in their oar on it <laughs> i'm surprised that you have nice things to say about vincent skiavelli because didn't he almost cost you your job with moonlighting well, I don't know that he almost cost me it. In fact, I don't think he was ever, honestly, I don't, from what Police Beasley told me, he was not really in the running. He kind of wanted it, <clears throat> but he wasn't in the running for it because they had another idea about how to go. Um, Roger Director, who created the character of uh, Herbert Viola, uh, had a pretty specific idea. And I'm not sure, although this is just a guess, Vince had already done the show. He'd already done Moonlight. He'd done a guest star on him. And so I'm not sure they would have brought back the same actor to play a different character. And I'm not sure they would have hired the husband of Elise Beasley as a regular on the show. There were reasons for that not to happen. And he was he was disappointed in it, but I knew nothing about that until after I'd already done the show and gotten to know Elise. I had no idea that he was even considered up for it. So was it pretty much a given that you were going to be in one crazy summer? Well, Savage said that. You know, he'd said, you know, there was all of the drama about what happened with Better Off Dead, that it wasn't what the studio wanted or claimed that they wanted or was expecting, something along those lines. Cusack had sort of gone off it, and so suddenly the idea of doing a trilogy, which was what the idea had been, was now sort of, it was just going off. It was not, you know, we've gone into, I mean, it's a long, long story, but, and it's really Savage's story, um, and it's hard for me to, to really relate it, um, but... You know, I, I'm, he's the one who really should tell you that. Um, but it had been, it, they'd gone into it with a very high expectations, and then it just sort of didn't quite pan out to their mind the way they wanted it. I still think it's classic movie, and and I can't imagine it being done any differently. But for whatever reason, the network felt, yeah, which they always do. It happened with nerds too, but in this case. It was somebody who was coming in to them with a very specific, very he, he was a it was a unique, different approach to romantic comedy or gross out comedy, whatever you know that thing was happening at the time, but different and imaginative. You know, people say they always want different things and imaginative things, and they don't want to be doing the same old thing all the time. And they're lying when they say that, because truthfully, they really want 
something that they know. They can say they don't, but that's not the case. And that was certainly the case with Better Off Dead. I have been reading the script of One Crazy Summer, and I am so sad that your little hermit crab character never made the cut. Yeah, well, it was a little weird, even for Savage, I think. Uh, I don't remember what happened exactly about that. Again, that's a Savage question, but I do know that we shot this whole sequence with a crab. It was funny, but it was clearly weird. And at that point, they were looking for any reason, I think, to cut stuff that was really out there. Also, you know, the character of Akak was not an important character. Whatever Akak's thing was didn't really affect what plot there was, and it didn't affect what John was doing or Demi was doing. It was nothing like that. So I don't remember, again, what the reason was for them doing it, but they decided it wasn't necessary. It, that happens. There was enough there of Akak in the final cut to make him a, a memorable character. And I can't believe that you and Bobcat came up with that scene or, or you helped with that scene. Oh, I no, I had nothing to do with it. It was all Bobcat. That was entirely Bobcat. He, we were at lunch one day and he came up to me at lunch and said, I have this idea. I want to show it to Savage because I think it's really funny. So he took me into the set, which we were shooting at the, the um, he and Tom Ballard's characters, the um, Stork Brothers. The Stork Brothers uh, a garage, he took a, he, we went in there while everybody was at lunch and he went over the, he went over the idea that he had and we went through it once. And then after lunch, he got Savage sort of reluctantly because they're in the middle of the shooting day. And one of his actors is saying, we want you to add a scene. And that was the last thing Savage needed at that point was adding stuff when stuff was going to be cut anyway. And so he went in and we did the scene for him full out and he just loved it as who wouldn't. And he immediately called for a new setup and we shot it, but that was entirely Bobcat. All, all I did was have him tell me what to do when we showed it to him. What was it like working with Joe Flaherty on that? That was the best because we were all of us, Joel Murray and uh, Bobcat and Cusack and I, were all of us SCTV fans and we loved Joe. And he was doing this, you know, again, improvising the entire thing. It was there was a scripted version of that speech to the to the uh, Boy Scouts or whatever they are on the beach. But he had clearly already decided he was going to go his own route and he would do it differently every time. And the four of us, Joel and Bobcat and and John and, and I were up on the beach out of camera range, just just totally delighted at every take. It was because everyone was different and they were all funny and wonderful. It was a big deal. I mean, for me, it was a big deal because I was a huge fan of Joe's and of the of SCTV in general. So for me, working with one of them was really a big deal. Your cameo in How I Got Into College. I've always wondered, is that is that Daniel Fitzpatrick behind you, one of your like congregants? Yes, it is. 
we were shooting Moonlighting on the Fox lot on stage 20, and Savage had asked if I would do this cameo basically on my lunch hour. And I said, okay, but will you include Dan? Because he's my stand-in on Moonlighting, and he should have... Of course, I didn't even ask Dan whether he wanted to take his lunch hour to shoot this thing, but um, he did. So they gave him a haircut, so he looked sort of appropriate for a Bible college. And um, we went in there and did it in about two takes, and then I went back to moonlighting. His face, I loved seeing him in the background of so many shots in that show. He was like the Greek chorus almost. Yeah, well, they all were. All the people on on in Blue Moon Detective Agency. That was one of the things. You know, they were always there and always taking in what was going on with with David and Maddie and so on. It was. It was. I think one of the great little things that they did was the way they used those people very effectively. That face and those eyes. He was just so expressive. Yeah, extremely, extremely. You know, I didn't realize until I was listening to your book that there were four Revenge of the Nerds. I thought that the, you had only gone up to three. Well, there were two television ones and two feature ones. Really, you know, none of them did much for me after the first one, but there were two TV ones, three and four. Well, and you're kind of like the the big deal in the fourth one. Well, yeah, but, you know, I always felt like that was kind of a bad idea. Making Booger any bigger than he was in the first movie was a mistake. And when we did the second movie, Anthony Edwards was not going to do it. And they, you know, managed to talk him into doing a couple scenes, but he had moved on. They bumped up everyone else, Lamar and Booger and Takashi. We all got sort of kicked upstairs because there was just you know, they they were missing the other lead. And I understood the need to do it, but I still thought it was a bad idea. And then when we went to three and four, and it was even more, it didn't work. They were, what made those characters work well was when they didn't have a ton of stuff to do. When they became sort of, by default, lead characters, you realized how thin the characters were in the first place, which is to say nothing about not, not saying anything about the actors. It's just those characters were always intended to be supporting characters, not lead characters. must've felt a little almost unnatural to be in the spotlight. Well, it's, you know, that's my own opinion. You know, a lot of people like nerds two better than nerds one. I've never understood that, but a lot of people do like it. I don't remember a lot from it. But it accomplished what it set out to do, which was basically kind of redo what we'd already done in a different place. I was very happy to hear your voice as Ezekiel the Cockroach in Doom Patrol. Yeah, that was nice. That was um, as a result of uh, that was sort of a, a bonus thing from Supernatural. And they had this character and... Um, they thought I would be right for it. So it was really fun to do. Uh, I'm hoping, you know, they'll find a way of bringing him back if it comes back. I know you're still doing the voice on American Dad. I'm curious what else you're working on. I was working on Happy right up until this, I mean, this last season of Happy on Sci-Fi. 
a recurring part on that and uh, also on Champaign, Illinois, but it's canceled anyway, uh, with Adam Pally and Sam Richardson. It was fun. And they 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 put us uh, they put me back together with Elise Beasley. We were actually playing the characters Burton and Agnes from Moonlighting, and Adam Pally is our son in the show. So it was sort of an inside joke, which nobody got because nobody watched the show apparently. But it was fun doing it, and I got to spend you know a summer in Atlanta with Elise and. Yeah, it was cool. I'm sorry more people didn't see it. Thank you so much for your time. It is always a pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you. And uh, it's always good to remember that show because uh, it was lovely. And I think it holds up. Better Off Dead holds up extremely well. And uh, it's always good to see it. Come running in from the lobby, thinking that they missed something. Hi, I'm Ed Stork, movie star, also known as Bobcat Goldthwait, and me and my friends John Cusack and Demi Moore. I hate boats. I'm not getting on any boat. I beg to differ. Just had one crazy summer. Your dad said you were collecting shells. Shells. 57 millimeter. We did all the normal things people do. Hey, little boy, will you hold on to this for me? talking about One Crazy Summer now, the second feature film from Savage Steve Holland. So I don't know if either of you guys had a chance to read the script, because my goodness, is this a different movie on the page than what we ended up getting on the screen? Yeah, I did read it, and I was stupefied. (laughs) (laughs) It explains a lot of things that I just never got in the movie itself. Uh, yeah, that yeah. I know we're missing. And yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And it's, you know, we, you talked to Mike earlier. I'm good at this is, uh, you know, I don't want to tip your hand or anything, but there was some banter going around the internet about possibly doing a reading of it. And I, I think it's absolutely worthy of that in some form. Yeah, I think we should definitely set that up. I'll, I'll reach out to the, uh, not ready for podcast players here and <laughs> see what we can, what we can get going. Cause there's going to be a lot of things that I talk about here and I don't think people are going to necessarily believe it. I mean, uh, I talked a little bit to Curtis Armstrong about his whole friendship with a hermit crab and that plays into, because he's ack ack in this and that plays into this whole thing with lobsters. And then that really plays into the whole thing with Mark, Mark Metcalf in here and his hatred of lobsters and how he has a lobster restaurant and it's just like kind of there in the movie but it's not at the forefront where it is in the script 
I agree. I mean, they come off as weird touches in the finished film that I didn't find mm-hmm. funny. I just found it sloppy and weird. <laughs> so our main character, again, we've got Cusack. And as you heard in the interview with Savage Steve Holland, there was a falling out between him and Cusack. And from Armstrong's book, it sounds like it happened right before filming started of this movie. And I have to recommend Curtis Armstrong's book. It is fantastic. And he goes into much more details about how some of this was. And he wasn't there for the falling out, but you can just tell that things were not happy behind the scenes of this movie. I think that comes through in some of the choices that were made. Stuff like, so Hoops, our main character, is really bad at basketball. There's like an irony to his name, but then also his parents, or at least his mother, was a basketball player, and we see her in the movie, but he never stands up, and there needs to be something that shows that this actress is like six foot five, and John Cusack, he's not a short man, but he is nowhere near her height, and that needs to be played out, but instead we just kind of miss that, and we get the idea that he can't make hoops when he's constantly throwing stuff at garbage cans, but that's about it, and there needs to be more of that, and that's the thing. It's like, we talked about how all of these jokes are just like layered, 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 and it felt like this one was much more stripped back. Yeah, this one just kind of felt like they, he just threw a whole bunch of stuff in a bucket and said, oh, that works. <laughs> just Here's some things, Here, here's a few people that you know doing a bunch of random, silly things, but... This this script, like you said, it does shed a lot of light because at times I was I felt like I missed something, or I totally that I totally that maybe I wasn't paying attention enough, or maybe something slipped me by. But I just I felt that certain characters just felt strangely vacant. I always like, got the feeling watching this initially before having read the script that they ran out of money or something, and they had to sh- this mm. on the fly. Because it does seem half-baked and unfinished to me. The whole thing with like even the introduction of Cassandra, the uh, Demi Moore character, I always kind of thought that maybe she was a criminal by the way that she is introduced running away from that. It's, it's a former football player, I believe, but the, the guy who's got the pink wig. Yeah, the pink party store rocker wig. <laughs> yes. And she's running away from him, and she's got, like, at least $500 of his money or more. And I was just like, okay, did she steal that? And there's this whole, like, it's my money, no, it's my money, and we never really find out in the script. It never circles back to the origin of that. No, and nor... He just throws the money around, and they're like, and it's gone, bye. And it sets up, like, oh, now these bikers are going to chase her down, but they don't. (laughs) They never show up on Nantucket. Yeah, they're defeated by water, like uh, the A-team. <laughs> yes. I, mean, I talked a lot about um, Better Off Dead being like, the Mad Magazine movie. I feel like One Crazy Summer is the Cracked Magazine movie. Oh, man. I might go farther, and I might say it's more like the crazy version. Oh, now I'm going to on that, because I liked Crazy Magazine. Well, I liked Cracked, so. Well, <laughs> we're all <on> a separate podcast. <laughs> All right, let's okay. Let's let's meet in the middle. It's the sick magazine movie. Bingo. The whole thing with hoops in that he hates boats. It's just John John Cusack going, "I hate boats." Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's like, "Well, why do you hate boats?" And then there's the gag of the the other Murray brother throwing the uh, the 
chili dog in his face like twice and then hoops throws it and misses and yada 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 but that's supposed to be that hoops gets really sick on boats but we have none of that stuff yeah i kept expecting some kind of maybe phoebe kate style explanation of just he stops dead and has this really tragic story of why he hates boats but we never got it. <laughs> just, You're talking about the time that his dad would, took him out on a boat and that he had a heart attack and we, you know he was so young he couldn't work the oars to get back or you could only work one so he just went in circles for hours. <laughs> or his dad had a heart attack and fell over while Cusack was fishing and he thought he caught like this huge fish like, and it turned oh. out it was his father's corpse. He pulled him from the other side of the boat under the boat and he came. Yeah, we could have been there. We could have done that. We'll do some fanfic on this. Like I was saying with the whole idea of Badger's story is Badger's story, and Badger's like to the side. And then in this movie, you've got Squid, the little girl character. And unfortunately, like Squid's character intersects with the rest of the characters too much. Like that it's her driving the rabid dolphin. And it's like, okay, that doesn't necessarily work for me. Like that her dog is front and center of this stuff. That Mark Metcalf gets to show that he's so evil that he kicks the dog. It's just kind of weird. Yeah, she seemed almost like an alien. (laughs) (laughs) Almost like she was just supposed to be, like he would just find out halfway through the movie that she's been transplanted there and that she's studying humans. Now we're now she's just, you know, taken a liking to these certain group of humans and is, is trying to help them out. I'd have been fine with that, quite honestly. <laughs> Again, more fanfic we could come up with. <laughs> I'll say I do love the gag with the two girls who are teasing the dog, teasing her about how ugly the dog is. And and the crossing guard says, uh, you know, they're making horrible faces. They're holding their faces in funny positions. She says, if someone slaps you on the back, you know, your faces will freeze like that. And then Squid slaps on the back and their faces literally freeze like that. But I thought, okay, well, this is this is now – you know, this will be in the vein of the gag a minute layered detail of Better Off Dead, and then the rest of the movie doesn't work that way. And it starts out that way. I mean, it's like the, the the whole thing of kids at the graduation, and they throw their hats up, and the kid next to Lane gets the hat, comes down in the middle of his back, and murders him. Okay, that's cool. Or when the, the other Murray brothers like, oh yeah, my mom doesn't think I'm responsible or something, and then they kind of, you know, take the camera up and there's the Christmas tree from the previous year or years on top of the car. It's like, okay, this is fantastic. But yeah, to your point, it just feels like they ran out of steam or money or something, or maybe that relationship with Cusack was just so toxic that they weren't able to do what they wanted to do. Just trying to get it made and get it done with so that they didn't have to work with each other. Anymore. Yeah. And just chill out on the beach and then tuck it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did like that they went to generic high school. That was something yes. I just noticed. And generic elementary for Squid. <laughs> I liked both of those. <laughs> and I was thinking, that's when the uh, the Public Image Limited, the, the generic album and generic cassette came. I was like, that was in the air in 1986. Yeah, it totally was, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, generic flipper album, yeah. I mean, there are moments. There are moments of this that I like a lot. I found Adultweight especially wearing to deal with this time. Oh, I love him. I can't help it. <laughs> yeah, I was watching this with my wife, and I, every time that he came on, I could feel her tense up. I did notice also, this is if I may switch to my heavy metal movies hat right now, my previous book. 
I did notice Be Cruel to Your School by Twisted Sister is uh, featured prominently on the soundtrack uh, as they're graduating. And Bobcat Goldthwait was in that music video, which was banned from MTV for violence, which is ludicrous. Wow. Um, it was a zombie uh, movie parody. And uh, he was very tight with um, Dee Snyder. They were good friends at that time. And uh, when, when Bobcat Goldthwait in interviews now only ever emphasizes his relationship with Kurt Cobain. And I always want to scream, talk about Dee Snyder, you fake. <laughs> I love that Mark Metcalf was, uh, you know, kind of their bread and butter for a while. He was in at least two of their videos. Was he in that one? Uh, no, he wasn't. It's funny. I've heard Dee Snyder talk about um, when they were planning the first, the we're not going to take it video. He said, we need somebody like. Niedermeyer from Animal House, and somebody said, you know, Mark Metcalf is alive. He was like, well, let's call him. <laughs> this is like five years later. <laughs> Metcalf is fantastic. I was so glad that Rich Hall showed up in this movie, him and Taylor Negron working together. Oh, man, I fucking love Rich Hall, and I don't know what the fuck happened to that guy. Isn't he? Yeah, it's strange. He he was great, and um, I, I believe he moved to England, and he's a popular um, stand-up comic in England. And that's most I've learned about him. Yeah, he had that special that was on like Showtime years ago that I absolutely loved. It was him selling pack, uh, who's selling seeds, trying to get this uh, Wilt Chamberlain or Dr. J um, basketball, and it was just him going across America trying to sell seeds. It was so good. I never saw it. I remember reading about it. Yeah, he was terrific. He was really a, 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 a one-of-a-kind comic voice in the 80s. All those things like him on SNL. It was some of the, the darker days of SNL, but he was fantastic. And, of course, not necessarily the news. I still own Sniglet books. so It's funny you say that because I, uh, not necessarily, cause I thought of that this morning out of nowhere. There was a clip on that that cracked me up. It was of an experimental aircraft that could kind of turn in midair like a car. So the plane, it takes off, and then you see it turn, and you just hear Rich, Fol- Rich Hole's voice go, ah, shit, I forgot my wallet, and it just turns around and flies back. <laughs> he was the one guy when they were doing the uh, Superman tryouts that uh, could actually uh, form uh, a diamond out of coal, because Christopher Reeve, every time he would squeeze it, it would turn into oil. Did you ever see that Mo from uh, The Simpsons is based on, in part on Rich Really? Hall? Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. No, I did not know that. And when you look at Mo's face, you kind of see it. Yeah, I guess I can. Kind of can, like the lips and stuff. I don't have a lot to say about this movie. Like I said, there's some good bits to it, but the one thing that I found really interesting, going back to that script again, was that at the end of the movie, he doesn't end up with Cassandra, which I found to be great. Like they're kind of together, but then. The William Hickey character is like, oh, yeah, move out to California and become a singer-songwriter. So they have an animated sequence of those two at the end where she gives him his heart or gives him her heart and he takes care of it and does all this stuff. And then he meets up with her and she's off with some other guy. So then he goes off and I think he ends up going because he's trying to get to RISD throughout the entire thing. And finally, at the end, he manages to show up at the Rhode Island School of Design, and he meets up with a person, and he says to this woman, you're not a singer, are you? And she's like, no. And he's like, okay. And then that's their happy ending. I think I probably would have preferred something like that than just the standard, like, oh, they're together now. It's strange that Demi Moore is in this movie to me, because she's just not – like. I mean, I, I realize – I mean, she was – 
pretty well known at that point, right? Well, she had done um, the previous year she had or in 84. I think she did No Small Affair with John Cusack, which is also a rock singer. Mm-hmm. And then I think in St. Elmo's Fire, she's a singer. Or at least she has that giant Billy Idol face painted on her <laughs> on her wall. So she uh, she definitely had slipped into a type. It's interesting though. The same year that the same summer this came out um, was uh, she was in uh, About Last Night. So she was spreading okay. her wings, I guess. So she didn't, she didn't become what we you know what we know is Demi Moore now. But so it still just seemed yeah she just seemed really underused in this movie. To me, it just seems like she could have been anybody. I just I didn't know why specifically. I never thought of the Cusack tension as the. I, I really always thought they just ran out of money or something happened, and it was just like we got to just shoot this as fast as possible. It does seem like they ran out of money. Like the whole, I think Bobcat Goldwaith and Goldwaith in his Godzilla costume <laughs> trampling all over that cardboard city is kind of just maybe a metaphor for this movie. <laughs> And <laughs> that we just get to the end and we're like, you know what? I don't know. Cardboard city and costume. We got, let's do this. Well, thank God they got rid of the, uh, cause it is an Asian guy that's there and like says, Oh, great party. But they really played that up in the script where it was like almost a long duck dong kind of a thing. So it's like, Oh, I mean, cause you know, like in, in better off dead, like there's the one gay character and he like throws down the money. He's like, buy yourself another leotard or whatever. But it's like, okay, you know, well, the kid's wearing a leotard. Right. <laughs> Nothing, nothing particularly heinous about that. Yeah, no, it's not egregious at all. No, and in this one, it's like, okay, you know, Joel Murray, you're not much skinnier than the quote unquote fat guy that sits on top of you. It's also, you know, the era of can we get any other Murray brothers here? Because then um, Dana Murray was in Moving Violations, which was a uh, ripoff of uh, Police Academy, made by the Police Academy people. Because there's not enough of those movies. Jesse, you were talking about, you know, kind of missing the Cusack train. And yeah, he, he's been great in a couple things, like Con Air, of course. But other times I'm just like, yeah, I'm not really feeling it that much. Like, like things where he shows up, like Roadside Profits. I'm like, okay, cool. Or, uh, you know, I love him in tape heads. I fucking love tape heads so much. Tapeheads is great. Yeah, I've not, I have not seen Tapeheads actually. Right. That's been on my to watch for a while. Yeah, for me, like John Cusack, I don't. I'm not even sure what the first thing I saw John Cusack in was, but he's always just kind of been a a, a bland actor for me. Like I don't think that there's just nothing that ever popped out about him for me. There's nothing. I, I kind of feel like he ends up playing. Mostly the same guy in every movie. I actually haven't seen Say Anything either. I'll just admit that right now. I am not a big Say Anything fan. I'll tell you what, I wasn't. And then I rewatched it for the book, and I thought, this is actually a terrific movie. And I think I wasn't because of so much that's been attached to it through the years of Cusack mm-hmm. with the boombox over his head. And, you know, if you have a moment. Uh, it's something I would, uh, I, I had a good experience going back to that movie. I liked him in his, uh, affinity for kickboxing, the sport of the future, but the whole thing with like the, the embezzlement with, uh, the dad and stuff, it was just like, where is this coming from? This doesn't feel like it's the same movie. 
I loved it because I thought, well, this is this is like real life. This is like a problem someone might a, a huge problem that might really affect a family. I have to say, it caught me off guard this time. I thought it was really good. John Cusack. Another interesting aspect of John Cusack in the context of what we were talking about is Mike. You pointed out how in Better Off Dead he played Woody Allen esque character, and then he is actually the stand-in for Woody Allen in Bullets Over Broadway which I think is a very good movie. He's very good in that, and it's a very funny movie. Um, and he's just, he is the he is the young Woody Allen character. In that. Well, he was in a couple of Woody Allens, right? Like Shadows and Fog, was that Woody? Okay, but I I don't know if I ever saw that one. There was a period of time where I was not watching Woody Allens, um, and then I've got recently gone into that phase again. I don't know why that is, though. So. Yeah, and then, Jess, we were talking, you were talking yeah. about um, Cusack. So, in February uh, this past year, um, I live in Akron, Ohio, and John Cusack came to a theater we have here, this this old theater called The Civic. They were doing a special screening of High Fidelity, and he was there to have like a Q&A, and the person that they had moderating it was this shock jock DJ from this local show called Rover's Morning Glory. And from what I understand, because I did not attend, um, but I had a couple friends, and then there were also things written about it <laughs> after the fact. They watched the movie, and everything went fine. And then the the woman, the DJ that they had come out to talk, totally just biffed it. Like, she just was n- asking weird questions. She asked him if he'd ever want to produce a movie, which he produced type fidelity. <laughs> Uh, the movie they just watched. She asked him, like, how much money he made on movies. She asked him about working with Catherine Zeta-Jones. <laughs> like, it was, I guess, people just started to leave and, like, say things openly. And I guess he was fine. Like, he just, you know, was cordial about it and, and went along with it as best he could. But, yeah, she just totally ruined the entire Q&A and then everything the next day was about how terrible the Q&A went and how <laughs> everybody was embarrassed and it was just like, oh, wow, great. Thanks, Akron. But uh, that's my John Cusack story. That's not actually my story. How are you doing? Nice to see you in a minute. <laughs> Sorry. It's funny. I actually was just text messaging with a friend because I'm missing class right now. You are? And my film class. And it's so funny because they're watching American Beauty today and they're analyzing it. American Beauty? Mm-hmm. What's funny about that? You were in that. No, was it? American Beauty? Nope. What's the one with the rose petals? I'm not in that. That's not you? No. Really? No. Really? I swear to God. Am I just very confused? I think you are. I think I am. Okay, I think. He did do a recent, I think it was in Cleveland, it was in Cleveland, a, a fan convention where he reunited with Diane Franklin for a uh, Better Off Dead panel. Oh, was it? That's awesome. Yeah, because I know uh, Armstrong was talking about them doing a read-through of uh, Better Off Dead, and he wouldn't show up. It was, um, they got John Heater to be Lane Meyer. Oh. Oh, wow. That's weird. Right? Yeah, it's a little strange. I don't know who else was there and what year this was, because I know, like, Ricky's mom, unfortunately, that actress, I'm pretty sure she passed away. She got blown up. With the cigarette. Yeah, she got blown yeah. up with the cigarette. Yeah, that was, they actually filmed that. That was like a whole snuff film. Yeah, it was really weird. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't make it. He was really sorry about it. 
She got a staph infection under that bandage. Yeah. Guys, I think we're going to wrap it up because uh, for the people uh, listening at home, I've actually had like two power outages as we've been recording this. So me putting this episode together is going to be a lot of fun. It'll be like a big puzzle of all these different audio files. So it'll be fantastic. So I want to thank you guys so much for being on this episode. So Jess, what has been keeping you busy lately? Uh, well, I'm just working on a few personal projects. Uh, a couple friends of I are doing a sort of collective where we're all making an individual video project that we're going to show um, together later on this summer. So I've been working on that and yeah, just keeping busy with work and video production and all that fun stuff. Podcasting with you and also uh, Chris Stashew, who I believe you podcast with quite a bit. Yeah, you keep picking out movies that I have to watch. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I'm victim of your tastes, which is okay. And McBeardo, we talked recently, and there's a whole interview out there where people can find out more about Teen Movie Howl. But for the people in the t- cheap seats, can you talk a little bit about the book and how your tour is going? Uh, yeah, the book is Teen Movie Hell, a crucible of coming-of-age comedies from Animal House to Zapped. And it's about... Uh, well, what we used to call Porky's movies as the uh, generic. It's uh, the 20 years between American Graffiti in 1973 and Dazed and Confused. Uh, all the wacky uh, teen comedies and not so wacky that came out and has incredible guest contributions from some regular projection booth personalities such as uh, Heather Drain and Kayla Janice and Kat Ellinger and Sam Deegan. I should also mention, because Chris will be upset if I don't, I'm sure, we uh, are going to be uh, debuting a brand new podcast um, here in the next month or so called The One Season Season Show, and where we examine television shows that lasted for one season or less, for whatever reason. And we are starting off with 1987's Werewolf. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to Patreon, where you can do- you also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
pull away the line, runs up the back of the stockings. I've always liked those kind of high heels, too. Don't take them off. Don't take leave them on. Yeah, that's it. A little more to the right.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Man, that's a real shame when folks be throwing away a perfectly good white boy like that.